Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 39, The Aeneid, by Virgil. Arma, virumque cano, troiae, qui primus aboris Italiam, fato profagus, la vinia venit litra, multileteris jactatus et alto, we superum saivae memorem unonis sobiram. Multa quoquit bello passus, dum condret urben, inferetque deos latio, genus unde latinum, albanique patres, at qualtai moinia Romae, Musa, mihi, causas memora quo numene laeso. Quidve dolens, regina deum tot volvere casus, insignem pietate virum tot adire labores impulerit tantainanemis caelestibus irae, Urps antiqua fuit, teri tenuere colonii, Carthag Italiam, contra Tiberinaque longe ostia dives opum, tu diis quasperrima belli. Quam iuno fertur terris, magis omnibus una. Post habita coluisse sammo, hic Cilius arma, hic currus fuit. Hoc regnum dea gentibus esse, si qua fata sinant iam tum tenditque foetque. Progeniem, sed enim Troiana sanguine duci. Audierat Tyrias olim, Quae verteret arces. Hinc populum late regem beloque superbum, Ven turexcedio Libiae, Sic vauere parcas. Id metuens, Veterisque memor Saturnia belli, Prima, quod ad troiam Procaris gesterat argis, Nec detiam calcirarum saevique dolores. Excederant animo, Manet altamente repostum, Judicium paridis, Spretai 
quin iuria formai, et genus inui set rapti ganimedis honores, his ac quensa super iactatos aequare toto. Troas reliquias danatque imitis Achilli, arcebat longe latio multosque per annos, Errabant actifatis Mariomnia circum. Tantae molis erat Romanam contregentem. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about epic poetry, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of epic poetry we have both read and determine whether it is worthy of its reputation. With me, per usual, is, I suppose... The palace to my Aeneas. <laughs> uh, or actually, mm. you should be the Achates to my Aeneas because that's okay. his like, BFF. That's his right-hand man. So there we go. It's Tom Panneries. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. We have a, We are currently on a three-day weekend. Yeah. And so. I survived the late-night middle school event that happens <laughs> every year around this time. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> I just had a very long week. So. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, and then this is the last, for us, this is the last long weekend until spring break. No, until the, uh, till the, the end of February because we, we have like a three or four day weekend in February for work where the kids do. We have like work days or PD days or whatever. And then as far as just like, pure days off but this is the last weekend i think until spring break oh okay yeah so it's it's you know kind of going to savor it because we're 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 the long haul that is midwinter at a at, at, at a high school especially after um november and december where there are almost like two week blocks of time or three week blocks of time because like you know we get we get like a four or five day weekend around election day. And then we have a couple of weeks, two to three weeks. And then we have Thanksgiving where we have a five day weekend and then we have two to three weeks. And then we have the winter break, which is a full 10 days. So that like winter that break peer- is 10 days. We get two full weeks. Yeah. Well, Oh, Oh, Christmas break. Yeah. Christmas break. Yeah. Oh, we don't, okay. we don't have, whereas my friends in New York, like in the middle of February, they get a week off for what they call winter break. Um, we don't get that. We just have the two weeks over Christmas. And so between like mid-October or just beginning of November all the way until the end of December, it's like, you know, it it flies because you're just barely, you know, every time you turn around, you're off again. But now we come back from this this weekend, which at which to pull back the curtain, we're recording over Martin Luther King weekend. It's it is just it's basically, you know, six straight weeks of school. And not a, and and not a, a not a long weekend. And by the by the middle of it, it, you start to feel it. You're like you're praying for a snow day. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you already so. got to. We got to. It was well, it was weird. That was so weird. So it was weird for us too. But yeah. we were in school. That's true. That's true. Yeah, here but we yeah, are. yeah, here we are. 
So it's... Well, finally, we have chosen a book, and it's really me. I chose an epic poem. Mm-hmm. That uh, this is probably the first one that I have extreme, <laughs> extreme authority on. Whereas mm-hmm. all the other ones, you know, so so or maybe more than so-so, but here we are. And it was good to reread the whole thing because for my AP Latin course, I only go through certain passages, well, I guess books, longer Mm -hmm. passages, for in the Latin and then in the English, they only have to read particular books. So to sit down and read the whole thing has been nice to, to revisit all that. So yeah, I'm excited. What is your history with this book? Or sorry, epic poem. I don't like to listen to it. Well, well, before before you uh, before I get to that, I, what you described is how I kind of ha- is kind of how I end up approaching the Odyssey from year to year because I teach sections of the Odyssey, not even whole books, just like excerpts from certain books. So it's been a number of years since I've read the entire epic of the Odyssey. So I'm that's where that's where I we kind of we actually kind of sync up here i totally understand your experience when you're saying yeah i read certain set you know you feel like you reread every year and they're like no there's like for me there's like you know more than half of that that particular epic poem that i haven't read all the way through in years um this is the second time i've read it uh the first time i read it was my freshman year of college uh where i took the uh, Loyola College, now Loyola University, Maryland, uh, honors program at the time in, had you, instead of taking kind of those entry-level classes, entry-level, intro-level, 100-level classes uh, that everybody had to take in philosophy, theology, history, and literature, there might have been a fifth one, uh, they had us call, They had us take what we, they called a uh, honors seminar, course, no, just an honors course. And it was it was arranged by time, so you had um, over your sophomore freshman and sophomore year. So we had the honors. The ancient world was the first one, and then it was medieval, um, Renaissance to modern, and the modern world. Those were the four. So in the honors ancient world class. We were assigned to read the entirety of the Aeneid. So that was the fall of 1995. So it's been literally almost 25 years since I had first first read the read it and i i do remember liking it at the time because and and it it's possible that i liked it at the time because the first epic poem that we were assigned to read was the iliad and i hated it <laughs> like just had a serious disdain for the iliad it was just i found it impenetrable and uh was very glad to see like you know that not all epic poems are as just 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 as horrible horrid as as the Iliad. So so um, I had not um, I had it was one of those books that I've been meaning to just kind of like on my meaning to reread list. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in one of our local bookstores, uh, our locally owned bookstore, uh, uh, New Dominion Books in the downtown mall. Just a, a plug was chatting with the owner who I actually know because we talked together and uh, ended up buying a couple of books and they had the Robert Fagel's translation of this and since I had really enjoyed the Fagel's translation of the Odyssey I decided to pick this up and it basically sat on my shelf collecting dust until we until until this so that's my that's my boring but necessarily told history of the Aeneid <laughs> there you go 
Yeah, I knew of Virgil in high school. I don't recall doing any translations. My school did not have AP. And the poetry that I do remember doing in fifth year, and I did an independent study Latin four and five, so I was kind of mm-hmm. on my own. And I remember there was prose, and then there was Catullus, I think was really the majority of the poetry. So I don't remember okay. doing any Virgil in high school. So in college, my third year, I think, I took, and this is interesting because my, I have two degrees. I've got an architecture degree and I have a classics degree. Uh And so architecture is so, and this is true of any university. I went to the University of Virginia, but it's just. Wahoo Wah. Yes, Wahoo Wah. Uh, By the way, three uh, of my, my girls on the the Who's soccer Uh team got drafted into the National Women's Soccer League. So I'm super pumped about that. But Uh anyways, (laughs) because that just happened on Wednesday. I was watching it during lunch. Yeah. The the architecture school, so-called the A school, is mm-hmm. intense. And yeah. once you get into third year, there's even like shirts and things. Like third year, you lose friends. Like you don't even see any. <sighs> and I think our shirt said, I can't, I have... I have studio, which is like the main, it's a six credit hour class and you're Mm -hmm. just there. It's, it's crazy. So my thing was to take a break and be out of that little area and all those classes because it's all in one building is to at least once a semester take a Latin course. And Mm -hmm. so by the end of my four years, I had built up enough credit hours that I could double if I just needed a year of Greek, which is why I took a fifth year. So anyways, I think it was my third year that I took a Latin course with Professor Woodman, whom I love, an Englishman, and uh, a little bit kooky, and sometimes he would like look out the window uh, waiting for an answer. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes those things make people uncomfortable, but I just got used to it, and I was like, well, when he turns around, he's going to have a really good answer, because people would ask him (laughs) something, and he would turn around, look out the window, and then he would turn back around to us and say something brilliant. Uh, So it was a lot of fun, but we did book seven, the entirety of book seven, and there are only Mm-hmm. two grades in that class the midterm and the final oh, <laughs> the God. final was 70% of the grade oh. and it was over the entire 700 lines oh, and God. so it was it was stressful to say the least but yeah. i got an a on it so i oh, know, nice. just to, nice. to flex a little bit but anyways so that was my first introduction to him in translating Mm-hmm. And then it was either my fourth, but I think it might have been my fifth. I took a similar to your course, like a, a Roman civilization course mm-hmm. with Prof- Professor Myers, and we read the entirety of the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. So that was in college and then I got hired right out of college and I was a little nervous because during the interview process for the job that I currently have and it would have been my first full-time job they asked you know about AP and I didn't feel comfortable teaching AP because I thought I just got out of college doing Mm -hmm. this exact thing and so to have that authority I felt like I didn't have it well you know now I'm actually teaching it and I ended up teaching I just had to do a lot of work in order to to get that authority yeah I've been teaching yeah yeah, it's AP is one of those things where like you go in as a teacher and you think, oh, I couldn't possibly be qualified enough to teach that. And then you realize like once you get it, like I'm never letting this go. <laughs> You're like, and you were like, why was I so intimidated by it? Because I've been teaching AP for a couple of years. I'm like, no, this I want to teach this class. How it was inside me all along. <laughs> there you go. So for several years, because they changed the AP maybe four or five years ago, mm-hmm. it was just Virgil. I mean, they've changed the Latin AP a couple times, but it was just Virgil when I was teaching it. So he did a pretty 
significant chunk. I think like over 1,500 wines or something like that uh, of different books. Not – it was total, but just of, of all those books. And then they changed it, and so we do now half Caesar, half Virgil. So I'm still with Virgil. And, yeah, I love him. I get excited because Caesar is fine, but with the whole semester of him, it yeah. starts to – not really weigh you down but especially in book five it's just so long it's 24 chapters that you're having to do and Mm -hmm. just a lot of um i mean there is war and battle and things but it's just like it drags on for so long but when we get to virgil and i always just feel like a little sort of uncomfort with caesar like i can't you know they ask these questions about certain things and i'm not a military expert that's not my thing and you know my bent in or my level of expertise in Latin. So that's hard for me. I have to like be like, okay, I don't know. I'm going to have to go research this, which has gotten better over the years because they ask the same questions, so now I know them. But with Virgil, I like start off, I know just so much more, and there's just this comfort that I can talk to them and and go through things and hopefully help them understand. But that's my history with this little guy. So, yeah, I am going to talk to you a bit about Virgil and then about the – context of Rome at the time to a certain extent and that'll be mixed in with his bio and then I'll talk about the book as a whole and or the epic poem as a whole and I did get the epic poem I think maybe from Wikipedia Mm -hmm. I could I mean you could make a summary as long or as short as you want of this luckily for us this is only 12 books whereas the Odyssey is what 24 24 yeah yeah and the Iliad is also a, a bit longer too so it's about half that size so some people actually do argue whether or not it's an epic which is certainly something that we can we can talk about sure sure because i i have i have an opinion on that so okay uh yeah well <laughs> probably, yeah, sure it probably lines up. up with yours but he's called virgil of course i call him my beloved to my students so when i say my beloved they know exactly whom i'm talking about but i just imagine virgil as this Maybe a nerdy guy, but not so nerdy, but calm, I think soft-spoken, uh, of genteel manner. And maybe in my <laughs> my biography of him, you'll be able to, to get a sense of what this is. So this biography actually came from UPenn Classics, so I'll talk about uh, – use that, so thank you for that right there. So his full name is Publius Virgilius Maro, or Virgilius, because these are W's in – or they're pronounced as W's in Latin. And he lived between 70 and 19 BC. He was born near Mantua, specifically in the village of the Andes. And it's said that Virgil's father was a farmer who actually married his employer's daughter. And so this farming will actually come into play in Virgil's history. We don't know too much of him, but, you know, similar to Jesus and his father Joseph, Virgil took on, you know, the um, the employment of and the profession of his father for a time. He did go to school at Cremona, and he uh, studied in Milan, and then went to Rome when he was seventeen. And he considered a profession in law and rhetoric. So, you know, think a bit about Cicero, but he didn't excel at that. Uh, They say that his first speech in the courts (laughs) and his only speech was poorly done. And so he ended up turning to poetry. 
So around this time, of course, we've got Julius Caesar who crosses the Rubicon River in 49 BC. Alia Yakta S. The die is cast, and that's going to create, of course, the uh, the civil war there. Virgil may have been conscripted to serve in Caesar's army for a year, but it's also likely that his poor health prevented him from serving at all. Uh, he later left Rome and he settled in Campania at the philosophical school known as the Garden, which was a school founded by Phaedrus. And he continued to be tutored by and studied under Philodemus and Ciro, I believe, a couple of Greek sages who had profound effect upon Virgil's mind and writing. So he leads his quiet life, and the Civil War is, of course, going on in the background. And uh, after the assassination, and then Octavius and his rise of power and cleaning out all the assassins and everything... This is a big moment right here because Octavian, not yet known as Augustus, actually takes some farms away from different people uh, in order to give it to war veterans because, of course, you have to make promises at times and, and give them what is their due. And one of the people's farms that were taken away was, in fact, Virgil's family farm. He will later get it back, but I think this is just something uh, key to note. Virgil prefers to write about things like nature and farming and how to take care of your flocks and be good stewards. So he writes the Ecologues, he writes the Georgics, he comes under the attention of Mycenas, who would then become his patron of the arts. Mycenas has a relationship with Octavian, so then Virgil comes back into contact with Octavian. And Octavian, who then becomes Augustus, of course, now the first emperor of Rome, commissions Virgil to write this epic poem of Aeneas. And when the emperor tells you to do something, you're not really in a position to say no. So he is going to. But of all the the works that you could ask Virgil to do, something about war and hardship and uh, to a certain extent, maybe displacement he could write about. That's not necessarily in his wheelhouse. And uh, so you can see there's, there's I think, a, a tension between what he is meant to write and what he, you know, does write. And also, if you see all of the epic similes that he used, and just plain similes as well, you can see the true Virgil pop through. And I love those moments. He talks about bees in the Georgics. He has these, and you know, how to take care of them, things like that. And, oh man, you know, bee similes and comparing the Carthaginians to, to worker bees when Aeneas finds them. So you see, I think it's true nature pop through in this particular work, which I really like that someone can him, do something that might be uncomfortable, but turn it to suit them. So I think he does a good job of that. His lands are returned to him, which was nice of Augustus, but I mean, uh, he should have done that. And unfortunately, as he's working on this, so he is asked to, uh, well, he began work in 29 BC. He ends up traveling. He actually meets up with Augustus at one point in uh, Megara, and he becomes ill. Of course, you know, he was of, of, of a weakly constitution. And he does return to Italy, and he dies in 19 BC at Brindisium. And Virgil is a bit of a perfectionist, and it was um, incomplete to a certain extent, and I don't want it to seem like it was incomplete as in 
it doesn't end the way he necessarily wanted it to end, though we can talk about that. Because potentially he could have had, because it is rather shocking how it ends, he could have had a sort of post uh, scriptum and, you know, how does Aeneas actually turn out. So uh-huh. it's not like that. I To my students, when I talk about this, I say it's not like the book that is within the book of The Fault in Our Stars. Because in The Fault in Our Stars, you've got your characters, of course, and then the, uh-huh. the girl character is reading a book. And in this book, the narrator dies suddenly, and it just cuts off, and that's the end of the book, and she's like super uh-huh. shocked and everything. So I tell them, you know, it's not like that. But if you go through in the Latin, there are partial lines, be- uh-huh. not full lines, because it's in uh, dactylic hexameter, which means there are six feet. So there are lines that are cut off. There are sections where there are uh, maybe like a chunk of lines that are repeated elsewhere, which seems a little suspicious. So it's clear he was going to come back to it. And because he was ill and he probably knew that, hey, this is the end, he told Augustus that he would like this work to be burned because it's not, it's incomplete. He doesn't want it out there. He's dead. He's not the last person to do that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. Oh, did that happen too? Someone actually told me recently of somebody. Franz Kafka. Kafka. Kafka ordered all of his stuff destroyed. Um, oh, I, me, I don't know about modern, That's but Kafka is the one I'm coming to a reference. To. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's funny that the fault in your on our stars is your reference point for like an incomplete work because when I think of epic or, or long form poetry like this, and I think of something that's incomplete, I actually immediately go to the Canterbury Tales, which is. Um, which Chaucer died writing and therefore survives oh. only in what was what was available. And there are parts of the Canterbury Tales that um, have been included in supplications where there's a debate whether or not they are actually Chaucer's, you know, like where people might have added to it. Kind of like with the what we were talking about, like with uh, Cervantes and uh, Don Quixote, where somebody wrote a sequel, then he wrote the second part. Um, there's you know, kind of scholarly debate about like what act Chaucer actually wrote as opposed to what was added to later on. So, all right. So I'll, I'll hop back out, but I just, okay. I just found that, found that interesting. Oh, well, yeah, I, I, I don't, th- I've not read enough to be of any authority to be like, Hey, you know, well, neither have I. So complete, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my kids wouldn't know. Cause I'm like talking to eighth oh, graders yeah. and then up to 10th. So yeah, it wouldn't have mattered. So anyways, uh, he countermands this request and he has it published. So the reason why, Augustus wanted this gets into the context of Rome at the time. So number one, he wants a national text for schools. Up to that point, uh, the students, of course, they're learning as all students. Well, I should just say the boys. The boys were learning as all (laughs) children do, you know, uh, rhetoric and writing and things like that. And a go-to text for them probably would have been Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, but it's Greek. Hmm. And that's not their story. So Augustus wanted something that represented the story of the Romans. And so in this sense, it would have served that purpose. It would have been in Latin, and then it would have shown the, this great story and why the Romans are such a great uh, race. Another reason why it was written is we – well, the context of the time, of course, is we're in this transition period, which going from one leader to another is always a transition. But we're going from a whole government type to a new government type. So there's this transition with 
the Republic, from the Republic to the Empire. And there was a bit, you know, you have a segue with Caesar as a dictator, so we're already leaning towards the Empire, but just complete upheaval to a certain extent, social, political change. Mm-hmm. Augustus, who is a bit of a moralist, he is looking around at the Romans at the time and sees that they're corrupt, uh, morally bankrupt to a certain extent. They're not worshiping the gods as they should. Uh, they're sexually promiscuous, you know, affairs, doing all these different things. Orgies, which depending on if the gods ask it for or not, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And, um, you know, there's violence in politics as well. And he he's looking back at, you know, way back with the kings like Numa Pompilius, who was a very religious man. And where are these ancient morals? Where have they gone to? So he wants to bring that back into the Roman vocabulary, better worship of the gods, bring back traditional moral values. And so Aeneas is supposed to represent that because he is a man who has dedicated his life with some hiccups, we'll talk about that, to following the gods and following his uh, destiny to found a new nation and his dedication to Troy, of course, and to his family above personal goals and personal and self-glory. And this is known as pietas, which is the devotion or duty to God's state, country, and family above self. So that's why he's known as Pius Aeneas right off the bat when Virgil is introducing him. And uh, we will also see, of course, that Virgil models Aeneas after Augustus to a certain extent. And so we can talk about propaganda. So I'll get in in my next point. So Augustus is a little bit the model for Aeneas, but... And this is what I'm talking about, that farm situation and all of this, that I I do not see them as being buddy-buddy. I think they had a good working relationship, and he probably, you know, when they were in close quarters, it was fine. But away, I I don't know that he necessarily liked him because he certainly criticizes Augustus using Aeneas because Aeneas isn't the best character. I mean, I really like Aeneas, but he makes some bad moves. There are mistakes. We'll talk about what his flaw is so he does criticize augustus potentially using aeneas so there are negative and positive aspects of him and then if dido represents cleopatra then what does that say about you know augustus so we'll we'll talk about that the final thing the final purpose of this potentially and if we get into the the propaganda situation is that it was supposed to legitimize the claim that julius caesar is divine and by extension augustus is divine because he was his adopted son The claim would, of course, be that Venus slash Aphrodite, depending on your Roman or Greek terms, is the mother of Aeneas. Aeneas's son with Creusa is Ascanius, but his other name is Ulysses because it connects to Troy and Ilium. Ulysses will, all those descendants will go down to the Julian tribe, and the Julian tribe is the tribe of Julius Caesar. So through this, so Augustus Julius Caesar, now a connection to Venus, the Roman people can now connect themselves to two gods, Venus through Aeneas and Mars through Romulus Remus, uh, Rhea Silva and and Mars there. So, whoa boy, we're making a huge claim for the Roman people. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, And this is why, this is why I love it. And you know what? I didn't use any notes for that because I know what I'm talking about. So that makes me excited. Oh, for Um, (laughs) the... 
and yeah, from a political from, from a political science perspective, it's interesting to see how to see the motif of this sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, like the divine right of kings, because that was something that that was a huge part, um, especially as you get into the like the later Renaissance era and and things um, where you know the absolute monarchy would take place over the course of the you know much after the, through the Dark Ages and then you know, for lack of a better word into the medieval Europe and and stuff, but it's but you go to other empires throughout the world at different times, and there is this sense of like a god king type of status among the emperor, uh, whether it be like China or Japan or something, uh, especially in some of the earlier. You know, and, and I've this is based on me like skimming what I've seen over the years. Uh, based on the the further back you go in terms of to the past, you get this sort of almost divine legendary status of the early kings of what or emperors of whatever empire we're talking about. So it's like really interesting to see how this pops up in history, like over and over again. You know, and it was we saw it in Egypt as well. You know, I mean, the, with the pharaohs and and stuff. The idea that there was some sort of um, godly connection of that particular ruler uh, that perhaps I don't know solidified the sense that the people should worship him in that regard. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, and it, yeah, it'll certainly continue on. It gets uh, not many of them in the beginning were known as divine, but then as the em- empire started yeah. progressing, it was like everyone's divine now. You better worship yeah. him, which is how the Christians got into trouble, of course, because mm-hmm. they were refusing to worship uh, the image of the emperor. Yeah, until Constantine comes around, and I think it was like on his deathbed where he converted to Christianity, and then it becomes essentially the state religion at some point. Um, although if, it's funny because you're talking about how Augustus was very much like a moralist and um, he was a moralist. And then like later on, you get like Nero and Caligula and stuff. Oh, so. yeah. It's downhill. <laughs> it's down. I mean, there's some good ones, but they're really I mean, when they're bad, they're really bad. So, uh, yes. OK, so just to give you an idea, there are 12 books and there's a particular division of the books that Virgil creates. So books one through six are Aeneas's travels, his journey, <laughs> because as all epic heroes have, they've got a difficulty with directions and it's a challenge to get where they need to go. And so one through six, his journey, and this is supposed to reflect or be modeled on Homer's Odyssey, where Odysseus, of course, had his travails on the sea as well. And then books seven through 12 are the war that Aeneas and his refugee Trojans or Trojan refugees will encounter with the natives of Latium. And this is supposed to reflect or be modeled on Homer's Iliad, which is, of course, all about the Trojan War. So just to give you a sense of that. So this is rather long, and depending on what Wikipedia tells me, because I never read it before I copy and paste, I might make some editorial comments or things like that, but we'll see. Okay, so here we go. So book one, subtitled Storm and Refuge here, uh, in the manner of Homer, the story begins in medius race, which means in the middle of things. So right back in the middle, there's not much of an intro there. With the Trojan fleet in the eastern Mediterranean heading in the direction of Italy, the fleet led by Aeneas is on a voyage to find a second home. It has been foretold that in Italy, he will give rise to a race both noble and courageous, a race which will become known to all nations. Juno is wrathful because she had not been chosen in the judgment of Paris, which to give background on that, if you're not aware, this is how the Trojan War began. Eris, the goddess of discord, was not invited to the wedding of 
Peleus and the nymph Thetis, which is actually the parents of um, Achilles. So she was not invited, and she came spitefully so. And I mean, it's the goddess of discourse, so who would invite her? But she came, and she threw down a golden apple that said to to the fairest. And so the three goddesses... Minerva, a.k.a. Athena, Venus, a.k.a. Aphrodite, and Juno, a.k.a. Hera, all were vying for this apple. Jupiter, for obvious reasons, a.k.a. Zeus, is uncomfortable with this whole situation and is not going to judge which one is the fairest. So he picks up this little guy, Paris, who is kind of shunned from the kingdom. I'm not going to get into all of that. And now Paris has to decide. They each offer him something. Uh, Minerva, I believe it's uh, power over the, or victory over the Greeks. Juno offers a victory of Europe and Asia, or power over Europe and Asia. And uh, Venus offers the most beautiful woman in the world. If you think about that, and I this kind of opens my students' eyes when I tell them that, if you think about those three options, the Trojan War was always inevitable. It's just that two of the three situations, he, uh, Priam, would have had absolute victory. Like it was, it would have definitely happened. But the other one was a little bit shaky. So Paris chose the most beautiful woman who happened to be Helen, who happened to be married to Menelaus of Sparta. When you take someone's wife away, that's going to be a problem. So there you go. She was not chosen. She's upset with the Trojans. Okay, back to this. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, She's also angry at Aeneas or Raffle because Carthage is her favorite city. And the fates have foretold that it will be destroyed by Aeneas's descendants. So think about the Punic War. So that's true. Also, Ganymede, a Trojan prince, was chosen to be the cupbearer to her husband, Jupiter, replacing Juno's daughter, Hebe, and Ganymede was a Trojan. Juno proceeds to Aeolus, and you might know them from the Odyssey, king of the winds, and asks that he release the winds to stir up a storm in exchange for a bribe. Uh, and this would be Deopea, the loveliest of all her sea nymphs, as a wife. Aeolus agrees to carry out Juno's orders and the storm devastates the fleet. June, uh, sorry, Neptune, aka Poseidon, takes notice, although he himself is no friend of the Trojans. He is infuriated by Juno's intrusion into his domain and stills the winds and calms the waters after making sure that the winds would not bother the Trojans again, lest they be punished more harshly than they were this time, punishing the winds, that is. The fleet takes shelter on the coast of Africa, where Aeneas rouses the spirits of his men, reassuring them that they have been through worse situations before. There, Aeneas's mother Venus, in the form of a huntress, very similar to the goddess Diana, a.k.a. Artemis, Artemis, sorry, yes. I didn't think about that one, yeah, uh, encourages him and recounts to him the history of Carthage, Eventually, which is a very interesting story, actually. Eventually, Aeneas ventures into the city, and in the temple of Juno, he seeks and gains the favor of Dido, queen of the city, and not Dido the song, the singer, sorry. The, the, uh, <laughs> the city has only recently been founded by refugees from Tyre, T-I-T-Y-R-E, and will later become a great imperial rival and enemy to Meanwhile, Venus has her own plans. She goes to her son, Aeneas's half-brother Cupid, and tells him to imitate Ascanius, the son of Aeneas and his first first wife, Creusa. Disguised as such, Cupid goes to Dido and offers the gifts expected from a guest. 
as Dido cradles the boy during a banquet given in honor of the Trojans, Cupid secretly weakens her sworn fidelity to the soul of her late husband, Sichaeus, who was murdered by her brother, Pygmalion. I mean, we could write a play about that. Uh, back entire by uh, uh, inciting fresh love for Aeneas. We then go to book two and that yeah so Wikipedia did not talk about there's this banquet and Dido asks Aeneas to tell his story. So books two D- and Dido three- and Aeneas it's such an operatic story. I mean they have done and I did say there should be a play about it but there is actually a play called Dido Queen of Carthage which the American Shakespeare theater in Stanton put on and I went to see it which is super exciting you have like Pygmalion of course George Bernard Shaw oh that's what you were talking about yeah that's his thing but no no Dido Aeneas has there's an actual opera I don't remember who wrote it but that's actually and I I forgot to mention that when I was uh, in my history part was that's where I first ever heard of Aeneas was in like the gifted and talented program in sixth grade where we were learning about opera my weakest jeopardy category and (laughs) Dido and Aeneas was was one of the ones that my teacher uh, mentioned and played a selection from so and the only other place I've encountered Virgil is that of course he uh, he is the guide through hell and purgatory yes in the divine comedy of course, so. which is yeah. Once we get to book six, I mean that's the interesting yeah. thing about the yeah. yeah, which I tell my students, of course. All right, back to uh, the and I will say it's <laughs> yeah. I will say it's not the Pygmalion that <laughs> Tom is talking about. It's not she's all that. <laughs> it's not she's all that, and it's not the other Pygmalion. Oh uh, yeah, uh, like the ancient Greek Pygmalion uh, who okay. fell in love with his own creation too. So it's not you know it's gotcha, not that guy. Gotcha. Okay, so right, here we go. Here so we go. books two and three are flashbacks, just to keep in mind. So books two, or sorry, book two, Trojan Horse and the Sack of Troy. Uh, he begins the tale shortly after the war described in the Iliad. Uh, cunning Ulysses has devised a way, Ulysses is also known as Odysseus, a way for Greeks warriors to gain entry into the walled city of Troy by hiding in a large wooden horse. The Greeks pretend to sail away, leaving a warrior Sinon or Sinon to mislead the Trojans into believing that the horse was an offering to Minerva and that if it were taken into the city, the Trojans would be able to conquer the Greeks. The Trojan priest Laocoon, one of my favorite guys, uh, saw through the Greeks' plot. Who would trust, you know, why trust the Greeks even bearing gifts, right? That's where we get the don't or don't look a gift horse in the mouth. We get those sorts of phrases there. Um, and he actually throws a spear. I've lost my price, but at least I know what's happening here. Uh, he threw a spear at the horse. And it's interesting because, well, a sound is made um, of, you know, the soldiers and things like that. But the, the Trojans are so sort of mad, crazy mad with Sort of the idea that they've won, that they may have heard, but not really heard it, if you understand, like, what I'm saying there, you know, really understood what that sound was. So there are certain moments throughout this book that, well, leading up to the the sack of Troy, of course, that there are hints that they should have realized what was happening, but they didn't really, their mind just wasn't tuned to that. Unfortunately, uh, Lao Kuon, um, well... He went to, he is a priest of Neptune, and he went to go slaughter a bull with his two sons. And these two giant serpents come from the sea, and they kill his sons, and then wrap themselves around Laocoon and strangle him to death, all the while he is fighting fighting them. And afterwards, they slither their little bodies to a statue of Minerva. 
And so people take this as <gasps> Lal Kuon was committing sacrilege. He sinned against Minerva. We obviously need to take this into the city. So this is what has happened. So they take the horse into the city. They're actually, there's a party. All these people are like throwing garlands around it and bringing it up. Everyone's super duper excited. And they party hard, obviously. They get drunk. And at night, Sinan is the one to open everything up and, and uh, let them out. So while this the sack is beginning, Hector, who has already been killed by this point by Achilles, appears to Aeneas just as he had died. So he Aeneas is at some points confused with this. He tells Aeneas to leave with his family and take the household gods with him. He awakes, he ignores Hector, and he sees what's happening to his city, and he actually rushes off and starts fighting. He encounters some other Trojans. They put on some Greek armor and are able to slaughter some more. He actually gets to the palace. He sees the murder of Priam by Achilles' son Pyrrhus, which was actually a really horrible event. His mother Venus actually appears to him at one point because Aeneas is on his way back, because once he sees Priam, he's like, oh yeah, my father. So he comes back and on his way he sees Helen in a shrine and he's about to kill her because he, he says, you're the cause of all of this? And then Venus appears and says, no, no, son. It was not her fault. It was our fault. And then she pulls back the mortar, mortal veil that sort of hides their eyes um, or hides, I guess, the gods from mortal eyes. And he sees all the gods doing different things. So he uh, is placed by his mother very helpfully back at his threshold and he gathers up his family and his father basically wants to die in Troy because it's his home and you know he's old and Aeneas really wants him to go a fire a flame appears above Ascanius not harming him but just this idea because this has happened to other things uh, other people or you know if you look at paintings sometimes you'll see this as well the fire just representing there's something great with this person or wisdom as well so something so and Kaisi sees this and he's like oh my goodness well just for clarification if this is what you mean God show me a sign so of course there's a falling star so there's confirmation so they all leave Aeneas is bloody and filthy and so he has no right to touch the household gods so he tells his father to hold on to them he then hefts his father onto his back he's holding little Ascanius by the hand Creus has got to deal with herself they're running 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 they get to a little uh, enclave and there are some other Trojan refugees he looks around where's Creusa IDK he run 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 runs back no Creusa then appears Creusa's ghost <gasps> and he talks to her and she says no no you have to go she gives them some directions of where they need to go she also says there's a wife waiting for you so there you go uh so book two ends when he returns and they uh basically prepare to set sail all this this little group so book three entitled wanderings he continues talking to Dido. Uh, he talks about how he rallied other survivors. They built a fleet of ships. They made landfall at various locations on the Mediterranean. Thrace, where they find the remains of a fellow Trojan, Polydorus. Crete, where they believe to be the land where they should build their city, which they name Pergamea because Pergama is actually one of the names of Troy. Uh, but they're straight, <laughs> they're set straight by Apollo. The Strophe. 
oh, Strafades, I believe, Strafades, where they encounter the harpy Kaleno, who tells them to leave her island and look for Italy. And she actually makes a prophecy that you will not be where you're supposed to be until you eat your tables in hunger. So who knows what that means? And then Boothrotum. And the last city had been built in an attempt to replicate Troy. Aeneas actually meets Andromache, who was the wife of Hector, so now the widow of Hector. She's still lamenting the loss of her valiant husband and beloved child. There too, Aeneas sees and meets Helenus, one of Priam's sons, who has the gift of prophecy. Through him, Aeneas learns the destiny laid out for him. He is divinely advised to seek out the land of Italy, also known as Asonia or Hesperia, where his descendants will not only prosper, but in time rule the entire known world. In addition, Helenus also bids him to go to the Sibyl in Cumae. They head into the open sea. Aeneas leaves Boothrotum, rounds the southeastern tip of Italy, and makes his way towards Sicily. He's confused. There they are caught in the whirlpool of the Caribidus, which you should know, and driven out to sea. Soon they come ashore at the island of the Cyclops. There they meet a Greek who is left behind. He's one of Ulysses' men, Archimenides, which is interesting because, you know, Aeneas could have struck him down, but he doesn't. And he tells the tale of Polyphemus and all that business. They actually pull him aboard. And shortly after, at Draponum, Aeneas' father Anchises dies of old age. Aeneas heads on towards Italy. He gets directed to Carthage by the storm, of course, described in Book 1. And then Aeneas ends his account of his wanderings to Dido. So there you go. In Book 4, so now we're in present time. This is called the fate of Queen Dido here. Dido realizes that she has now fallen in love with Aeneas. And it's interesting that they don't talk about Anna at all in this little thing. I will say that she is very much pressured. She's not only pressured by the gods, and I should say the goddesses, but Anna pushes her and she's like, it's time you've mourned for your husband. I think it's okay for you to fall in love with Aeneas. So there you go. Juno seizes upon this opportunity to make a deal with Venus, Aeneas's mother, with the intention of distracting Aeneas from his destiny of founding a city in Italy and therefore destroying Carthage. Aeneas is inclined to return Dido's love and during a hunting expedition, a storm drives them into a small covered grove in which Aeneas and Dido presumably, yes, have some uh, some uh, nookie. An event that Dido takes to indicate a marriage between them. But when Jupiter sends Mercury to remind Aeneas of his duties, he has no choice but to depart. At the behest of Mercury's apparition, he leaves clandestinely at night, but Dido realizes it. She goes a little cray-cray. Her heart is now broken, of course. She tries in some impassioned speeches to get him to stay. One of them's impassioned and a little nonsensical to a certain extent. Then the second one is like really angry. And she, there's no way Aeneas is going to go. So then she tells her sister that she talked to a witch and she knows of a way to get over Aeneas. And it's basically going to pile up a bunch of the stuff and burn it. Kind of like a boyfriend box, I guess. But instead she piles up with a bunch of the stuff and she stabs herself. Anna realizes what has happened. She rushes to her. She cleans her wound, is, is with her when she dies. Because she has committed suicide, she dies before fates. The fates have destined her to die. So Juno is pitying her. She sends little Iris down, Iris the goddess of the rainbow, also a messenger god. And Iris clips her hair as a sacrifice for or an offering for Persephone. And then Dido dies because it was about to, it was going to be a long death. But Dido does curse Aeneas on the way that you'll remember this you'll see my funeral fire so there you go okay here we go book five looking it's sicily looking back from the deck of his ship and he sees the storm smoke of dido's funeral pyre 
And although he does not understand the exact reason behind it, he understands it as a bad omen considering the angry madness of her love. And I don't understand this and I don't understand in book six either because she told him straight up what was about to happen. But there we go. Hindered by bad weather from reaching Italy, the Trojans return to where they started at the beginning of book one. Book five then takes place on Sicily and centers on the funeral games that Aeneas organizes for the anniversary of his father's death. Yes, it took him a year to do it. Aeneas organizes celebratory games for the men, a boat race, a foot race, a boxing match, and an archery contest. In all those contests, Aeneas is careful to reward winners and losers, showing his leadership qualities by not allowing antagonism even after foul play. Each of these uh, contests comments on past events or prefigures future events. The boxing match, for instance, is a preview of the final encounter of Aeneas and Turnus and that the dove the target during the archery contest is connected to the deaths of <gasps> Polites and King Priam in book two and that of Camilla in book 11. Afterwards Ascanius leads the boys on a military parade and mock battle the Lucis Troiae, a tradition he will teach the Latins while building the walls of Alba Longa once he's older. During these events, Juno, of course, incites the Trojan women to burn the fleet and prevent the Trojans from ever reaching Italy, but her plan is thwarted when Ascanius and Aeneas intervene. Aeneas prays to Jupiter to quench the fires, which the god does with the torrential rainstorm. In anxious, Aeneas is comforted by a vision of his father, who tells him to go to the underworld to receive a vision of his and Rome's future. In return for his safe passage to Italy, the gods, by order of Jupiter, will receive one of Aeneas's men as a sacrifice. Palinurus, who steers Aeneas's ship by night, is put to sleep by Somnus and then falls overboard. Book six, uh, The Underworld. Aeneas, with the guidance of the Cumaean Sibyl, oh, I forgot, there's another question that I need to ask, descends into the underworld. They pass by the crowds of the dead by the banks of the river Acheron and are ferried across by Charon, before, who is the, the ferryman, before passing by Cerberus, the three-headed guardian of the underworld. Then Aeneas is shown the fates of the wicked in Tartarus and is warned by the Sibyl to bow to the justice of the gods. He also meets the shade of Dido, who remains unreconcilable. She also finds her husband again so there is some comfort there he is then brought to the green fields of Elysium or the Elysian fields there he speaks with the spirit of his father and is offered a prophetic vision of the destiny of Rome and he actually sees a bunch of oh important characters that will are in the line of Romans uh, book seven, Arrival in Latium and Outbreak of War. Upon returning to the land of the living, Aeneas leads the Trojans to settle in Latium where King Latinus received oracles pointing towards the arrival of strangers and bidding him to marry his daughter Lavinia to the foreigners and not to Turnus, the ruler of another native people, the Rutilians or the Rutuli as they say. Juno, unhappy with the Trojans' favorable situation, summons the fury Electo from the underworld to stir up a war between the Trojans and the locals. Electo incites Amata, the queen of Latium and the wife of Latinus, to demand that Lavinia be married to noble Turnus, and she causes Ascanius to wound a revered deer during a hunt, and she also stirs up Turnus, which uh, that was not mentioned. Hence, although Aeneas wishes to avoid a war, hostilities break out, and the book closes with a catalog of Italic warriors. Book eight, obviously Aeneas doesn't have a lot of people, so he needs to go find some allies. So he visits Palentium, the site of future Rome. Given the impending war, Aeneas seeks help from the Tuscans, enemies of the Rutuli, at the place where Rome will be. He meets a friendly Greek, King Evander of Arcadia, and his son Pallas. They agree to join Aeneas and lead troops against the Rutuli. 
Venus urges her spouse Vulcan to create weapons for Aeneas, which she then presents to Aeneas as a gift. On the shield, the future of history of Rome is depicted. And I should say that Aeneas doesn't just think, oh, I need to sail up the Tiber and find these people. He's actually visited by the god of the Tiber and is told that that's what he needs to do. He's also told that, because this is all in a dream, that he will know that this is a true dream, that he will find a white sow um, with suckling pigs. And so he does. And he's supposed to sacrifice that pig, the sow, to Juno, which is very interesting. Book nine, Turnus's siege of the Trojan camp. So Aeneas is away. Meanwhile, the Trojan camp is attacked by Turnus and a midnight raid by the Trojans. Oh, Nisus and Euryalus on Turnus's camp leads to their death. The next day, or I should say deaths, the next day Turnus manages to breach the gates but is forced to retreat by jumping into the Tiber. Book 10, the first battle. A council of the gods is held in which Venus and Juno speak before Jupiter, and Aeneas returns to the besieged Trojan camp, accompanied by his new Arcadian and Tuscan allies. In the ensuing battle, many are slain, notably Pallas, whom Evander has entrusted to Aeneas, and guess who killed him? Turnus. And guess what Turnus takes? His sword belt. Just remember that, people. Mezentius, Turnus's close associate and hated person by Evander and other people up there, allows his son Lausus to be killed by Aeneas. That's a weird phrasing. While he himself flees, he reproaches himself and faces Aeneas in single combat, an honorable but essentially futile endeavor leading to his death. In Book 11, there is an armistice, kind of, and a battle with Camilla. After a short break in which the funeral ceremony for Pallas takes place, the war continues. Another notable native, Camilla, an Amazon character and virgin devoted to Diana, should be similar to that one character that whose name I always forget in the Iliad. I'll come back to it. Uh, fights bravely but is killed, falling prey to her greed for gold. See? See what I'm saying about the booty, Tom? Arons, the man who kills her, is struck dead by Diana's sentinel, Opus. And finally, here we go. Final battle, duel of Aeneas and Turnus. Single combat is proposed between Aeneas and Turnus, but Aeneas is so obviously superior to Turnus that the Rutuli, urged on by Turnus's divine sister, Juturna, who in turn is instigated by Juno, no shock there, breaks the truce, they break the truce, and Aeneas is then injured by an arrow, but is soon healed with the help of his mother Venus and returns to the battle. Turnus and Aeneas dominate the battle on opposite wings, but when Aeneas makes a daring attack at the city of Latium, causing the queen of Latium to hang herself in despair, and the city is burning, which is ironic, he forces Turnus into single combat once more. In the duel, Turnus's strength deserts him as he tries to hurl a rock, and I mean a boulder, and Aeneas's spear goes through his thigh. As Turnus is on his knees, begging for his life, the epic ends with Aeneas first tempted to obey Turnus's pleas to spare his life, but then killing him in rage when he sees that Turnus is wearing his friend Pallas's belt over his shoulder as a trophy. Good. And thus ends the epic. Yeah, I know. I feel like I went on too long, but what can you do? Also, I'm very excited. But here we go. Hey, Tom, did you like this epic poem? I did. I liked it when I read it 25 years ago and uh, was pleasantly surprised that it that it still held up um, the way it did. It is. It's not my favorite epic. That would be the uh, the the 
the Viking. Gilgamesh? Uh, Beowulf. Beowulf is. <laughs> I just I've actually never yeah, read Gilgamesh. Uh, okay. There's excerpts in it in the English textbook in my classroom, um, and I may read it sometime. No, I was actually, as you were doing that, I was counting up like the epics I've read. I've read like uh, six, if you count the Canterbury Tales, and, and I have not, I mean, and the segments of Paradise Lost that I've read. This is probably in terms of like in my in, like in terms of the tightness of the story, um, and uh, and and just you know how how well it moves in its pacing. Um, probably like a, a close second, um, kind of tied with the Odyssey. And the only reason I like the Odyssey so much is that I'm so familiar with it, and which also you know the Odyssey has a lot of you know has a lot of just a lot of has multiple storylines going on and 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 and. Like just from a storytelling standpoint, I think is actually pretty amazing. This was um, a little more straightforward. I, I really did, you know, did enjoy it. Even if it toward the end, it does become kind of um, just like battle after battle after battle. It's just like you know, it just essentially becomes a war story. Uh, but no, I, I did, I did enjoy it. I'm so glad. This is my favorite epic. I think I don't know if it was on the recording once you edited it, but I'm pretty sure I mentioned last time that because I've translated it or anything that I would potentially translate, I feel like I have a closer connection to it just because you've been with the original language. And I think there's something so beautiful and special about that because even translating it, I mean, there's something and, and anyone, you know, Tom, you've taken French. Mm -hmm. It's you lose something going from the original language to English but it's just so great that uh, I've just I feel like I have this personal connection with it. I get to teach it every year. I I really love it. Um, there are beautiful moments, or really tragic moments, and it just always leads to a good discussion. You know, especially when we, when we get to Dido and what do you think about her and all of that stuff. So, yeah, one of my my top uh, books, I guess if I can call it a book, and then definitely my my top epic, and maybe one of my favorite Latin things, but. We'll save that for another time, I suppose. Okay. So, yeah, we mentioned that. I, I added another question, just so you know, but we'll, we'll, it's an easier one, I suppose. But this one that we came up with, because I forgot about this, do you consider this to be, because it is half the length of Homer's, both of Homer's epics, do you consider this to be an epic? Well, yeah, because I think it, I mean, length aside, I mean, like I mentioned, I mentioned Beowulf, and Beowulf is much shorter than this. It has all the qualities of the epic, you know. It, it has the scope. Um, it has the hero who is um, uh, the epic hero who's you know representative of his society, his culture, the values of that culture, who is of high standing, um, even divine birth. Uh, and it is the it is the story of the founding of the society. In which which it's written for, so I think it I think it checks. I mean, yeah, it's not as long as the Odyssey. It has the qualities of what the Odyssey and the Iliad and the other epics of the time, um, many of which I assume are like lost because of you know because because one of the things about at least the Greeks is that um, we have the Iliad and the Odyssey and and a couple of other like fragments of things because the Iliad and the Odyssey survived over time. For whatever reason, you know, was it because a lot of them were lost in the various destructions of the Great Library at Alexandria, or they just were not passed down as much? And um, the Aeneid survives. You know, I, it was struck. It struck me because um, this was written as opposed to 
Homer, who did not write, he they were still passing it down orally. So, um, you know, even though this is poetic in the terms of its actual language, it's just I've always found it interesting that, like, you know, you get into this um, and it's and it's been written down. Um, and then, you know, later on, you would have like, you know, the Arthurian poems and things like that that were written down um, as well. But like Beowulf, for instance, was oral before it was written down. So it's just kind of interesting to see the contrast between the two um, the two types of storytelling. But, yes, I, I consider this an epic. I don't know about you. <laughs> no, I, I would. I would well. assume I think, you did. <laughs> oh yes, of course. I agree with you. I, it's not about length, but I think that's what causes people to consider it, especially when they're looking at Homer and all of that. I don't know why. Is mm. it, you know, um, I guess that's novel versus novella that business. I but I, I don't think. I, I think it's more about content. I think I you're splitting you. hairs too when you when yeah. You do that. There's you know, it's about it's an amazing adventure mm-hmm. with uh, an individual person at the helm, but of course you've got his refugees as well. You've got highly stylized language, which just means, you know, it's fancy. It's not normal everyday uh, Latin that people would be speaking. Yeah. You have him undergoing feats that no average normal human being could. Of course, this interaction between gods and mortals as well. It brings up really, I think, important questions uh, dealing with superstition and free will, which we'll get to. And yeah, so I, I don't know how you could not. I think the harder question would be like hey are we going to you know does lucretia's uh on the nature of the nature of things is that an epic because he writes about all this stuff but in an epic format that sort of thing so Mm -hmm. absolutely do i think it's an epic do you have a favorite book of the 12 that we read it's probably the like like two like two three four Okay. The story with Dido and and her death. Um, I did really like book nine. Was it book nine with the no book eleven with Camilla and the Amazons? I did that. That I that was a scene or a battle that I could see like right in my head. And I don't know. Maybe it's because I've in the last few years read quite a bit of Wonder Woman, but it's just that oh. that sort of and the you know the, the 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 fight in the Amazon warriors and stuff like that. I was like you know that was. That was really, uh, really, really good. Um, it ends. It does end abruptly, yeah. but the ending is really good. But no, but the the, the story of Diodorus, I totally see why that is what a lot of people get out of it. And then um, I think I know the Trojan the Trojan War was one that I find. Sorry, the Trojan Horse is one I find really memorable, mainly because of the connection it has to Homer. Because I remember reading. I remember reading the Iliad and then again reading the Odyssey and um, the 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 Trojan horse is recounted a little bit in the Odyssey when uh, when Aeneas not sorry when Odysseus is at King Alcides' court in Phaeacia he is uh, the the Greeks have this custom of hospitality that no matter you know who you are if I show up and who I am if I show up on your doorstep you have to take me and feed me etc so um, he washes up and feeds which is called Arete? Xenia. Xenia. How Jeez, dare it's you? the other one. I, I went over <laughs> those terms. I'm like, I can't remember. So they have this. And um, and so he washes up on the shores of Phoenicia after being, you know, be, after leaving a, 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 a Gigia or Gigia from Calypso's island where he was his her sex slave for seven years. And um, he's at the banquet and they're doing storytelling and he hears the tales of the Trojan War 
and the Trojan horse, which makes him cry. And then he tells his story of his wanderings, the Cyclops, Scylla and Crypnus, the land of the dead, all that. Um, but it's not told, you know, it's, it's not, it, it's and the thing that always got me was that like, it, it's told and retold. It's almost like in a way that, and the same thing with the Aeneid here, where it's almost like this was common knowledge among the, the audience. And then we were just kind of recapping it for the sake of continuity. Um, you know, that like, and, and it's very possible that the actual telling of the story of the Trojan horse was like lost in somewhere because it, it does appear in other places. So it's just kind of interesting. It's like, hey, you know the story, but let's, like, let's recap it. Um, but Dido and Aeneas, yeah, it's one of those stories that, uh, like I said, it kind of transcends the rest of the of the epic, probably because it's the, the whole like you know the 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 love story and then the suicide of the you know which we've seen in other <laughs> we've seen the the love story and the suicide in other epics and plays and things like that. So you know that they're kind of right up there as a couple that has a tragic fate attached to at least one of them. So. What about you? Yeah, I I enjoy the language that occurs in book four. Mm-hmm. And some of those, like her second speech to him and some of the things she says are amazing. Even though she's crazy. <laughs> um, like she says, you are no goddess born. You were suckled by... I think it was like it's like a mountain lion you know on and you lived on rocks because of like how hurtful he's being to her or she it seems like he's being hard to her but he's like trying to actually not push on her love because he really needs to go so he's just kind of standing there um but it's just it's hard for me to read if only because it's just it's so sad because of how and uh i I don't want to because i want to talk about her but it's just sad so i don't know if i could pick that as my my favorite one because of that Mm -hmm. um but yeah one and two are big favorites for me but i would say my number one is number seven I think partially because that is the book that I translated the entire way through for Professor Woodman. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's with the prophecies that are really interesting. Electo, who is just this crazy character, super scary, vividly described the things that she does to Amada and Turnus. And then, of course, uh, the uh, sacred deer starting the war. Latinus being a strange king who's like, I'm going to be a shut-in now and not have any dealings Mm. and Juno opening up the gates of war. Just, I just think like that was great because the Trojans finally land, they eat their tables and they're like, Oh wait, yeah, that prophecy, which is interesting because Virgil kind of forgot because he says, Oh yeah, this was when he's writing. Cause (laughs) Aeneas says, Oh yeah, this was the prophecy my father made. But as a reader, you're like, wait, wait, no, this is the prophecy the harpy made. So that was kind of interesting Virgil, but see, he, he wasn't done yet, but just that. And they're like, oh finally and it looks it looks good like a good outlook and then all of a sudden bam all this stuff happens i just i really i really like that one okay so i do want to talk about the word propaganda Mm -hmm. and i think uh some of my kids they really get on this because i mention it but it's almost like do i should i not even mention it but to a certain extent it is meant to push forward the agenda of augustus and there are some things here but do you think the whole thing is propagandist 
Is that the correct way to say that? Or do you think it's just a portion? Do you think it should at all be considered propaganda? In what way can we separate this work from the the current events or what was going on in Rome at that time? Kind of a hard question to ask. Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, well, the thing is, it's like if I'm thinking about other epics or things of this size, they all are propagandistic. Um, So like the Arthurian legend is on some level of morality tale – for knights, um, and maybe I'm maybe I'm speaking or I'm, I'm simplifying for the sake of brevity here, but like the idea that the knights were not exactly behaving as chivalrous as people think they should have, and all of a sudden you have this this tale of these knights to look up to. Um, Paradise Lost has religious propaganda contained within it. Even the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's you know here let's hear the stories, the glories of of who we were. And, and our origins in the same way that we have um, in even though we don't have like American epic poetry, we have, um, you know, quote, legends of our uh, of our founders and, and, and legends of the founding of the country, even if it's more it, it is a sort of mythology. If you think back to, say, the pilgrims in 1620 at Plymouth Rock. And things like that. And, you know, they're they're nice. Some of them are nice little stories to tell to kids. But on some level, they are propaganda, you know, to, to make you believe in the in the greatness of your culture. You know, it's a, you know, I don't know if nationalism particularly applies, but there's a sort of there's that aspect to it. So I, I certainly see that in here, especially with some of the prophecies of like, you know, you're going to be a great man who. You know who helps found this country. His shield, the description of his shield, which kind of is the you know, isn't it like just depicts like the history of Rome in that sort of sense. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the scene in Macbeth where uh, Banquo holds up the mirror and he sees all the kings because it's in other words, Banquo's Banquo will be the father of kings and it comes all the way down to the current line of succession in the English monarchy, like you know, like things like that. Um, so it's it's meant to reflect modern day, you know, contemporary speaking. Um, you got like you know he's offered prophetic ver- vision of the destiny of Rome. So while you certainly could say this yeah this is the myth of our founding i think it's it's also meant to be like a reflection of a sort of celebration of the culture and a reminder of our greatness in an age like you said augustus was a moralist so it's the reminder of our greatness and you know maybe it's a subtle way or not so subtle way of him saying hey you have to step to people you're you're not acting the way you should for the glory of rome so I, so I might be a little bit off there, but I, that's, I got some – I don't know if it's the whole thing, but there are certain parts of it or there are threads running through it that are definitely that. Yeah, I I agree. I think when I sort of bristle – well, I bristle at two things. The next, the, the other thing is the next question. I bristle at it just because to say that it's propaganda, I almost feel like it, it devalues the work that it actually is, the work of art that it mm-hmm. is. And I think you are absolutely right that there are, to a certain extent – in whatever age you're writing, I think there is going to be some sort of propaganda. Yeah. And his purpose was to further this agenda. But because he does critique Augustus through it and it's not, you know, hailing him at every bit and, and having Aeneas be this perfect pitch-perfect hero, mm-hmm. I think 
and knowing, I think, Virgil, or at least surmising Virgil's personal relationship with Augustus, I think we cannot just be like, it is, you know, pro-Augustus all the way, propaganda, propaganda, and that's the only way we can look at it. Yeah, well, I mean, and and that's the thing about, about works of literature like this, where they are they're complex enough to have more than one purpose you know like you're right you are devaluing it by simply calling it propaganda you know it's multifaceted so it is propaganda but at the same time it is an epic it is you know there's there's a lot more going on than just that so um it's almost dismissive if you were just say this is just propaganda agreed yep I will say just for background to get a look behind the mic, I poor Tom. I I did this and I just put a bunch of like phrases and fragments mm-hmm. and I said I'm so sorry, Tom. All of those questions are like dirty and hopefully you'll understand what's happening. But you know this thing so well that I'm just kind of following your lead here, so I just kind of <laughs> trust you with it. In fact, I didn't have any questions myself because I just knew that I'm like, you know, you Knowing, knowing even before we spoke that this was like one of your, or if not your favorite classical yeah. text, I'm like, you know, this is just kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride to a certain extent. Good. <laughs> You're in my side. Yes. Well, I just wanted to say, cause like that question, for example, listeners was just propaganda question mark. But I got it. So, I totally understood yeah. what you were yeah, talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah. especially <laughs> since you, since, since you've told me before the, the origin of like why Virgil wrote it. And it was like, you know, Hey, we need an epic too, which again, it's, it's simplifying yeah. for the sake of brevity. I totally see how that becomes propaganda. And, and when he's mentioning, like he mentions, I think he mentions Julius Caesar by name, at least a couple of times. Yeah. Yep, on the shield. Yeah, yeah. So you're just kind of like in the underworld. Yes, yeah. this where where the word propaganda. Like, yeah, this is propaganda. But at the same time, like I said, it's not just that. It goes beyond that. There's layers. Absolutely, yeah. And listener, this could be like a ten hour podcast. Mm-hmm. But we're gonna try. I to tried to this. pick like <laughs> I know I tried to pick the because we could talk about each book individually, but I'm just picking kind of like greatest hits and and things to talk about the work as a whole. So Tom, if there's anything you want to talk about specifically with some of these books, okay. uh, we certainly can. So my other question that I bristle at, and then we actually will get into Aeneas and you know the different mm-hmm. things that are going on there, is that some of my students call it plagiarism. They call it plagiarism. And I think they really get at me. And usually when they say like Latin's a dead language, I have now practiced enough that nothing reveals itself on my face. But the, that this actually really does get to me. And there are there are a lot of similarities. Uh, I think who receives a shield? Does Achilles receive new armor? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You do have, of course, Polyphemus. Um, well, the Cyclops Island happening. Pallas and Aeneas's relationship is to a certain extent similar to Achilles and Patroclus, though no, not in sexual, not sexual in nature. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could go on with many similarities. Of course, the, how he formatted yeah, it—that similar. The fight between and the fight between um, Aeneas and Turnus at the end, especially when he sees Pallas's belt. You know, it, it's it is it is reminiscent of the battle between Achilles and Hector. Uh, because I mean, this—he's not because Hector, Patroclus put on Achilles' armor and went and fought, and Hector killed him, and that right. kind of busts Achilles out of his shell and unleashes the rage. So even though it's not one for one, it's definitely reminiscent of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I could go on. Camilla, the person I was thinking of is Penthesilea in the Iliad. So you know, having that Amazon uh, connection, of course, uh, um, Aeneas never encounters Odysseus. Mm-hmm. 
So just to, to make that clear that he does keep it separate. So do you think that he is just modeling after it and paying homage to Homer or using that as a format because he knows that those are well regarded and so hey, I'm going to use this and then have my epic? Or do you think, I use the words ripped off in my notes, do you think that it's just too close and, and Virgil should have tried to uh, be more original in his approach? I, I tend to lean toward the former, uh, where I think it's there's a bit of a pastiche of Homer going on here, in that he certainly wants to recognize that he wants to set it. He wants to us to remember that it's set in the same world. Um, that there is a funny enough as comic fans, there's a continuity yeah. here. Not only that, he mentions yes. like Romulus and Remus, who did they they come after or before Aeneas? I can't remember. In terms of if we're going on like a timeline, because you know the other founding of Rome myth is Romulus and Remus, which is like is incorporated into the sort of mythology behind the Aeneid. So it's not it's not replacing it. It's like he like works continuity in here, which I I, I do appreciate. What's interesting? So he's left. It's interesting how he's he's searching about in Greece or in the areas surrounding Greece. And coming across places like, um, like the island of Cyclopes, and seeing Polyphemus, and then um, he'll go through the land of the, he'll go through Hades, uh, much like I don't know if it's the same Hades, but he'll go through the underworld, much like Odysseus did, and he encounters Charybdis, not Scylla. Uh, you know, again, it's it's relating, it's putting your audience in familiar territory, and and you know, reminding us like that you're part of this world, and and rem- reminding us that the Greeks were responsible for the destruction of Troy. I, I wanted, I was wondering, is he thumbing his eye at Odysseus a little bit too? Like, you know, reminding of like what Odysseus did to the, to, and then he left the guy behind, which I don't remember is yeah. in the Odyssey or not. It's been a while since I read all of Book Nine, and um, and then like you know he just kind of goes past Charybdis without much like Charybdis kills several of Odysseus's men and he just kind of so he's like maybe he's just kind of like you know flexing a little bit you know yeah I will say the even though I really enjoyed the final battle when I was just comparing it to Achilles it is a bit derivative derivative but modern context we're we're doing this in 2020 and granted I have not seen Joker but they just gave 11 nomination Oscar nominations for a movie that essentially does the same thing to Martin Scorsese. And you're like, you know, so and people are like hailing this as this take this gritty take on a superhero. And I'm like and, and from what I saw and what I read, I'm like, basically, Todd Phillips wanted to make Taxi Driver with a supervillain, you know, and I'm like, uh-huh. so so it's kind of the same question. We still ask ourselves this question in modern day. I don't think this is plagiarism. Um, plagiarism, yeah, plagiarism is is taking flat out somebody's work and passing it out, on, passing it on as your own. Yeah, that's. I don't think Virgil's doing that to Homer. I think he's. I think he's offering some respect. I think he's. I think he's poking a little fun at him, or he's he's kind of giving you know he's he's poking a little bit at him, and 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 in a way to just demonstrate Roman superiority over the world too. Going back to propaganda, because the Romans come after the Greeks, I think after Alexander conquers them. And like I'm trying to remember Greek history, but it's been a long time since I knew like all the in order Greek history and things like that, and you know the Peloponnesian War and like all these things that would have come after Aeneas but before Virgil. 
So I maybe it's just a, a little bit also just with propaganda that that kind of Roman flex because by then I think Greek had been con- I, I think Greece was conquered at some point by the Romans. So um, so maybe it's a little bit of that. Yeah, and even if you look in Book Six, and Kaisis has this little aside and says, "You will be good at mapping the stars." and sculpting and rhetoric and the you being the greeks and then it says you romans or future romans will be good at conquering and all of this stuff so he starts to separate those two from there yeah i don't see it as plagiarism either mm-hmm. i think it is modeled after it obviously um maybe heavily in some things but i actually find it fun to be like oh wow camille is pretty similar you know mm-hmm. to not in a boring like oh my gosh he couldn't come up with anything else uh oh the shield but the shield while you know the armor it makes sense it's not like it's out of left field for aeneas to get armor from his his parent and oh, yeah. uh, to see that ornate thing and and what the future of rome and the battle of actium i think is in the yeah. center or something like that so it's it's well, fun to see that and I think there absolutely is regard, respect in the homages that he pays to home. Yeah, well, and then if we're talking about the, again, the hero's journey cycle, you know, like Joseph Campbell, that whole thing, the talisman or special weapon is like part of it. So this is his Excalibur, you know, yeah. and, and the Excalibur is um, the Lady of the Lake coming out of the lake and handling it, handing the sword to uh, to Arthur, saying that you know this and it's sort of the sign that he is the king of England. When we all know that strange women lying in ponds is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power comes days comes from a mandate from the masses, not some farcical aquatic ceremony. But that aside, this is his talisman. It's his. Excalibur, it's his fronting the sword and Beowulf, it's it's his lightsaber, you know, just like that 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 thing. So yeah, that it's 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 a, it's essentially a storytelling tradition or a trope, if you mm-hmm. will. Absolutely. And the first three uh words, Arma, Wirumque, Kano, he's mentioning obviously what his purpose mm-hmm. is here but talking about Odysseus and the the, Tro- the Trojan War as well with Arma being weapons war so looking at forward to what he's going to talk about but backward to the Iliad and then Wirum meaning man so we've got Aeneas as the man but Odysseus as well so I, I personally think that it's beautiful and, and I like mm-hmm. it and I don't roll my eyes of it I've read all three of the epics <laughs> so you know I, I, I really like this one the best but I, I like that it that there are little cues back. And like you said, it is continuity. So yeah. it's like, oh, and doesn't it make sense that there might be another Amazon in the oh, world? Oh, yeah. You know, it's not like it's out of, like I said, it's not out of left field. Okay, another controversial question. Do you consider Aeneas a hero? And if you do, and some people be like, well, of course, but hey, there are, he does make some questionable decisions. And uh, what do you think? Because often heroes, uh, especially epic heroes, have a flaw. What do you think his flaw may be? Well, I do consider him a hero in the sense that he fulfills all the criteria for what an epic hero would have been. You know, much like Achilles, for instance. The Odysseus, I think, is the more debatable one, to be honest with you, because Odysseus is kind of, you know, the, the Odysseus, Odysseus does some stuff where I'm like, really? But it, the, the thing that sets Odysseus apart is his, um, is essentially like his humanity and that he is, he is, I think, out of the classic Greek 
epic heroes and Roman epic heroes, he seems to be the most flawed. But we're not. This is not about the Odyssey. Uh, we will get to the Odyssey at some point on this podcast, okay. listeners. Not in the next few months, but <laughs> sometime. Anyway, so it is. Um, I'm not sure what his flaw is. I want to say it might be. It, I, I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with the the typical one of like hubris <laughs> or something like you know okay. just perhaps arrogance or a temperament or something. But I definitely do think he is a hero and he's set up to be a hero by Virgil, whether or not he's heroic by our modern standards. I, I could be up for debate and a good discussion seeing how this would hold up, but within its own context, he's definitely a hero. I'm going to put you on the spot, mm. but do you have an example of where his hubris shines through? I don't. That's why I just went with it because I have no idea. I'm trying to think because I just I just think that like I don't know or or maybe a self centeredness. Like he's sailing away and he's like you know Dido's funeral pyre is there. He's like, hey, that doesn't look good, you know, and things like that. Or or the but but then again, you know, um, I I, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of one. I think Virgil's trying to set him up. I don't know if Virgil's trying to set him up as flawless or not. So I'm actually going to defer to you because I. I'm okay. trying to think of one. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I the reason why I asked is because I disagree, but I wondered if you had any evidence. No, I just uh, went with I hubris would, because it's the one that always pops up. <laughs> it is, yeah. I would uh, get on board potentially with your self-centered. Yeah, I maybe think. that's more um, accurate. And not to like not to the extent of being an egotist, but um, but he does you know think of himself a little bit more or or perhaps less. What is the consequence? I suppose of of my actions when he does that. But remember, he is supposed to be pious and he is. So the thought is that he's not thinking of himself. But you know there are those moments. I also consider him a hero. He does you know check the boxes mm-hmm. and. Uh, there are some moments, I think some moments that he really shines through. First of all, just I think his care, his care in uh, among the Trojan refugees. I think it's book three when some people have had, no, actually it's book five. Actually, all of this will be in book five. With the funeral games, mm-hmm. just how he rewards the people who won and he talks to the people who lost, but also rewards them. He's able to delegate well. I, I guess this could be leadership as well. After the the burning, he realizes, oh, people have kind of had enough and he gives them leave to depart from the mission if they so want. Uh, so I think that's that's a great character for him. Once they land, in on Carthage, he has that rousing speech of, and, and that's one of the the big quotes from Virgil that you'll remember. Of perhaps these things will be pleasing to us to remember at one point, mm-hmm. right? That we've survived all yeah. of this, and and he gives them hope of the future. Like we've been told that this is going to happen. So he has this great speech, and then right after it, he says like he all of this he feigns on his face, and he's pushing down these true feelings that he has about you know fear mm-hmm. and doubt he's pushing it down but he doesn't reveal it on his face and you're like wow you know what a that he's not really bringing other people in. like that's the type of guy you want but then at the other side so those are the positive moments mm-hmm. right of of augustus potentially right but then you have him ready to kill helen 
like blood in his eyes, yeah. fire in his veins, and saying, I know I am not going to get anything from killing a woman. I will not make my name here. But people will remember that I killed Helen because she started this. Like to think, oh <laughs> man, Aeneas, really? And, and thus the book. epic tradition of treating women characters awfully continues. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, very true. And then in book 10, I guess it would be once he finds out about Palace, and then just that whole book is him just slaughtering yeah, people left he, and right and not giving any mercy to anyone who asks for it. It's really hard to read if, you know, uh, in general, I think. And if you're on board with Aeneas, it's really hard to read. Um, so there are just those moments of like, yikes, you know, what is this? Ooh, can her- heroes be allowed to do this? And I think that might be a criticism, you know, of Augustus was, you know, not necessarily ca- kind to his enemies, yeah. especially, you know, Mark Antony, if you think about that, cleaning house with the assassins once he has to go and, and find all of them. Uh, so you do think about that. But I do I do think he's a hero, but there are just some moments that give me pause and we'll absolutely talk about the ending. Yeah. With with his flaw, this is the flaw that I've always thought about. And it's, I guess it kind of sounds dumb when I say it, but I think it, it means a lot. I think his flaw is being human. I think with a lot of these heroes, these epic heroes, they just have godlike strength and all of this, and it's just big, big, big. And with him, he feels fear. He makes mistakes. He gets angry and not – I wonder if I could compare his anger with Achilles. I think at the end we could potentially. Yeah. But I just feel like he is not a flawless person, and I think he makes very human mistakes. And of all of the epic heroes, I think he's the most relatable in my opinion. And so I think it's just being a normal average guy, and sometimes even though he has this destiny, he has a god in his blood. He's got – you know, um, he's human, and he makes those mistakes. And so that's the flaw that I – sort of lean to he fell in love he shouldn't have he delayed in in Carthage he really shouldn't have but hey being human means to fall in love and so he made that mistake so that's the the flaw that I always go to and that's why I really appreciate him because I feel like he's more relatable for me mm-hmm. than potentially Achilles or uh, Odysseus but anyway I probably could make a case that Odysseus is just as relatable because Odysseus's fate is really by his own doing he makes a lot of his <laughs> own mistakes now yeah. a lot of his mistakes are because he is really arrogant and his own arrogance is what brings about not even a downfall, but just brings about like, you know, he kills his results in his like entire crew. You know, I mean, had he had he not shouted out, had he not t- turned back and taunted Polyphemus on his way off the island, yes. he, the, the, yeah. he wouldn't have been lost at sea for 10 years, you know, and things like that. So I think they're up there together. Uh, possibly for different reasons, though, that they're both very human. They are both very relatable, but at the same time, uh, they don't have the same personalities or flaws. So, yeah. But you're right about the comparison to Achilles, where Achilles, Achilles always seemed larger than life, one step above, because Achilles was essentially a demigod anyway. And and so, that, so that's where I, I agree with you. Although, like we were saying at the end, there is a... You know, it it does start to become a little bit derivative of the end of the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In connection with this, this was one of the questions I thought about when I was doing my summary. The Golden Bough. Mm-hmm. 
so the golden badges for people because it wasn't in my summary it's in book six he gets to kumai and he goes to the sibyl and the sibyl gives him many directions one of which is to bury a friend that had just died doing something he shouldn't have been doing which is challenging a god to a contest <laughs> and the sibyl also tells him and the sibyl is a priestess sorry about that uh who will be his little guide so there's the connection between this work and dante's inferno because aeneas has a guide and then virgil will mm-hmm. The Sibyl says you need to go pick this special branch, this golden bough, and it will be an offering to Persephone, and that's basically a key he gets to – or a passport he gets to move through the Uh world. It will only come off for someone who deserves it. And so this is the way that it is described in my Fitzgerald, and I know, Tom, you have the Fagels. Uh Is that correct? Okay. Let's see here. I sh- I'll skip, even though I really want to, the simile that he talks about because it's just uh, very beautiful how, how much it, it shines through. But it says, let's see here. Aeneas at once briskly took hold of it and, though it clung, greedily broke it off. Though it clung, I uh, even though it's probably one word or two words in the Latin, I, I should have looked that up. I think it speaks a lot. Why do you think it stuck a bit and doesn't? I mean, he's able to break it off, but it's not like bam, it clung. What do you think about this? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely. You know, and I'm trying to. I, I'm trying to to come up with an answer. I'm also stalling because I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Like um, this is where I'm, I again. I'm just gonna. Def- uh, I'm gonna defer to you because I'm trying. Like I said, I'm trying to think of like you know what, why, why would it? What is it? What is it about him? Or what is um, what's his, what's Virgil trying to say? So yeah. um, why don't you help me out here? <laughs> yeah, as with some of these things that uh, I will ask, I you know I don't know of the the intent, right? The mm-hmm. authorial intent uh, of poor Virgil here, but I think it might connect back to uh, what we were talking about. Just Aeneas as a character. Augustus as a real life person and that he has flaws Mm -hmm. so perhaps a perfect a flawless hero bam would have come off no clinging but here it sticks just a bit to sort of show those mistakes that he's made and that hey you're not the perfect hero but it still comes off because yes that is his destiny and yes he is a hero so that's as far as I've you know in my studies of this and and sort of because I know I've read a scholarly scholarly article on this as well but I wondered if you potentially had any other insight being someone who's uh, not necessarily studying no I don't and I think that that's um, and and I, I wasn't and I wasn't. I think the reason I don't have an answer is I wasn't looking for that when I was reading it. So, oh yeah, I mean it's obscure. Yeah. It's two words. Yeah, I wasn't right? looking for that so, story, yeah. but I also wasn't looking for the sort of criticism of Augustus. So um, I'm gonna. But it, the way you're phrasing it, the way the way you're uh, you're putting it, it does sound uh, that sounds accurate enough that it definitely could be that way. Okay. Still sticking in book six, uh, another question that I, it's debated, it's debated a lot, and, uh, you know, I have a thought on it, but I'd like to hear yours, so it's at the end of six, Mm -hmm. Uh, there are two gates of sleep, one said to be of horn, this is from Fitzgerald, whereby the true shades pass with ease, the other all white, ivory agleam, without a flaw, and yet false dreams are sent, through this one, by the ghosts to the upper world. Anchises now, his last instructions given, took Sun and Sybil there and let them go by the ivory gate. 
So the true dream, uh, these two gates, they're also taken from the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I think Penelope, she gets some messages through the horn. Yeah. They go through there. So here's the question. That's It's a hard question. Why does Aeneas go through the ivory gate, false dreams, not the one of horn? And this, I apologize. This was one of my. No, no, I gotcha. Um, ones I just added because I forgot about it. I know that in the Odyssey, he comes across his mother. He comes and who he didn't know was dead, and he thinks that Persephone is tricking him. This is probably going to be inaccurate. I'm wondering if you take him through the land of false dreams and he is able to get what he needs out of it that it shows his intelligence or something like that, that he's able to overcome the challenge of the underworld. You know, the harder, the, perhaps it symbolizes the hard road that he has to endure in order to get to the founding Rome because it's right before the wars. I don't know, I'm, I'm stretching here. <laughs> I'm reaching here. What do you think? <laughs> My only thought that I've had for years now, and I've still to (laughs) work through it, is when he goes, well, I'll say before this, that Anchises tells him everything. He tells him of the future of Rome, all these important people. And I will say as a little prod to the propaganda, we do say Marcellus who was the nephew of Augustus and his first chosen successor, and he dies at a young age. It was very tragic. Mm -hmm. And so there's this little opus to him in there. So there you go with that. But Anchises tells him everything. He also tells him of the wars yet to come, all of this stuff. So my rhetorical question is, do you really think someone can leave with all of that knowledge and continue his journey and the journey's going to end okay or or you know is that allowable the answer really is no so i think he can't really leave with this superhuman knowledge or above human knowledge because he could circumvent all this crazy stuff he could have had a a, a scanius not go hunting and all this stuff and so i think in a way it almost like washes like mind wipes mm-hmm. him as he walks through and i think i'm i'm hoping that he's left with the comfort of i met my father i understand you know my destiny will be fulfilled but there will be hardship but he doesn't know exactly what it is yeah uh because he can't he can't have this knowledge going through so that is as far as i've gotten mm-hmm. with it for the you know the years that i've been teaching it yeah it's it's, it's like you're gonna make it home but here's all the stuff that you're gonna have to run into <laughs> you know, this is how you get home, and it's almost like guidance rather than rather than that. Um, I found the passage. If you want to just compare translations really quickly, oh sure. Yeah. Um, so it's in the Fagels. It's about line two forty one to about two forty seven. So, as mistletoe in the dead of winter, winter's icy forests leaves with life on a tree that never gave it birth, embracing the smooth trunk with its pale yellow bloom, so glowed the golden foliage against the ilex evergreen, so rustled the sheer gold leaf in the light breeze. Aeneas grips it at once, the bow holds back, he tears it off in his zeal and bears it into the Vatic, Vedic, Sibyl's shrine. So the phrase was the bow holds back, which is different than what I think Fitzgerald said yeah but still the idea resisting yeah yeah, yeah yeah okay let's see okay let's talk about mm-hmm. dido been holding off on her my 
I don't even know how to phrase this question. I mean, I put it in our document in defense yeah. of Dido. But what do you, let's just go with this. What do you think about Dido as a character? I think she's a tragic character because I think she's manipulated mm. by the gods and um, maybe not by Aeneas per se. I think that's where his self-centeredness might come in where he's like, you know, yeah, I got to keep going. So bye. But she's been affected by Cupid and stuff. And, and so I, I think that she's, yeah, I think it's just, just, she's, I think on some level she's been manipulated by, uh, by higher powers and therefore is, uh, is a, is a character of a tragic nature. Do you think she deserves to be, uh, viewed positively or do you feel like by the end of book four, do you feel kind of a disgust and like, Oh, you know, she's, yeah, she's not that good of a character after that. See, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, lin- if I'm looking at it through, uh, too much of a modern lens. Uh, there are a number of, I could see this as sort of, a. Uh, fatal attraction is not the right word, but the sort of you know the sort of over that overly dramatic um, the the suicide being what it is with her heart broken and, and things. Um, it fits the time. It fits the style. Uh, I don't think she's a a model character for 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 women <laughs> in particular. Uh, no, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't think. I just think she's very sad. To be completely honest with you, um, and beyond that, you know, so that's what makes that particular part of the Aeneid like a tragic part of the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I think once I get there, my students sort of get disgusted to a certain mm-hmm. or annoyed, and I'm like, oh man, she's a terrible person. But it's interesting because once you get there, I mean, I can't remember how many actual lines book four is. You know, maybe mm-hmm. eight hundred or so. It's like it's definitely the downfall of Dido and and watching that all happen, but they just seem to forget what she was like in the beginning and that she was manipulated. Mm-hmm. So I have to bring that into yeah. focus because to think of all she went through, you find out that she had this great marriage. Her brother's a terrible person, killed her husband. She had to take these uh, Phoenician refugees and, you know, go off on her own. She lands in Africa. The tribesmen there did not want to give her land unless she married them. And she's like, no, no, I've made a vow to my uh-huh. husband. They tell her you can only have land that co- that a bullskin can cover. She's like, well, that's not very much. But, she's in, but she cuts them into strips and has the land she says there you go while flipping them off and then uh she has this land she starts to build it and it's like wow she's a great leader you have this presentation of her when aeneas first sees her as a great leader compares her to diana and then yeah the gods get into it goddesses anna is not a help and so oh man so i do try to definitely defend her when she gets into this madness and you know her speeches yeah. you kind of have to t- to sift through it and and she does make poor leadership choices once she and Aeneas are in this relationship Mm -hmm. because all the building stops and everything and no one's doing anything you're like oh dear everybody just stopped but I do try to defend her and then you know just to think it's hard for me though you compare it to I was just about to say it sounds very Cleopatra-esque 
Right, yeah. So she's got, you know, resting control of Egypt from her brother slash husband. And then she, of course, gets into bed both politically as well as romantically. Yeah, and then Antony. And she's able to build up. And then Antony and Egypt and everything. And and I guess that's, you know, sort of the the commentary Mm -hmm. there of, you know, being in bed with these uh, people. But also, I think Virgil, I mean, this might have been one of those proddings from Augustus, right? We can't have her too great um, because. Because Augustus, as Antony, made fun of Mark. Sorry, Augustus, as Octavian, made fun of Cleopatra and Antony. So, uh, but yeah, it's just uh, unfortunate because you are in that trope of how women are portrayed in epics. And in Homer's time, it was sort of the the homemaker or the weaver Mm -hmm. or the seductress kind of thing. You only have really those two characteristics. And here you're like, well, we've got this person who's breaking that mold. And then you're like, oh, wait, Uh, she kind of went back on her her progression. So yeah, it's just it's hard. She's a complicated character. And you're absolutely right. Tragic would be the way to it also shows this sort of and and something I've always pointed out to my students when I teach um, when I teach the Odyssey is how petty the gods and at least the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon is very, very much similar, how petty they are and how much they sometimes they take joy in, in, in disrupting the lives. So there's a lesson to be learned, <laughs> you know, don't yeah. anger the gods, you know, so. Absolutely. That's a great segue. We're, we're winding out. I only have two questions okay. left. I do want to talk about the role of superstition, but I think we can merge it into... Three versus three will. Yeah, three I saw will. that too. Yeah. So, oh man. Uh, with, uh, I'll say with Aeneas and then we can say with the rest mm-hmm. of the characters. So Aeneas, of course, to what extent does he have free will? And then with the rest of the characters um, that we see, to what extent do they have free will? So fate versus free will is the the challenge. What do you think? I, I think that I think fate plays a significant part in this, because especially toward the in the early, like maybe the first half of it. So the second half of it, I don't know how much, but I do know that it's very much like fate. I feel like maybe, maybe especially with the final battles and stuff, that he's reached the point where like fate is, is the fate's played out now, and now he's just like he's kind of hit the point where now he's like I don't know if it's his free will or what, but he's just kind of fulfilling everything. So he's more the the um, the star of the show there, whereas in other in other tales, not just epics, but there were entire plays about the world of fate. Uh, at least with the Greeks, like, you know, we go back to Oedipus, for instance, right? You can't avoid your fate. Um, you know, as much as you've tried to, as much as your parents tried to, you're still going to grow up to marry your mother and kill your father. With this, there are certain aspects of fate that are definitely in play here. Like, you know, he has to go to this particular place. He arrives at the one island you were saying, um, and it's I don't it's escaping me right now, and uh, they're like no 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 that's not where you're supposed to go goodbye you know and 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 so <laughs> yes. so there is a certain amount of fate and then we see the we see the whole uh, catalog of warriors and we see the whole history of Rome and that this was that this was destined to happen so there's this but but at the end there is a fulfilling of that destiny that is presented as more heroic as say Odysseus returning to his home and basically cleaning up and then Homer literally having a deus ex machina of of Athena coming in and stopping a, another war from breaking out um, which is more of the kind of like just making things right as opposed to fulfilling my destiny so 
Um, I think when he fulfills his destiny, perhaps he's doing it of his own free will, or at least he feels that he's controlling it a little bit more than say being a victim of it. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the, the lens we should look through. Is he a victim of his fate or if he is, is he a man of fate in a more noble way? Yeah. So the fates, just to, to give a sense, the fates are even or destiny are even more powerful than the gods. So once they, and by powerful, I mean, even the gods cannot change somebody's fate. Uh, So that's why Juno is raging mm-hmm. all the time because she knows what's about yeah, to happen. Yeah, that's when, when Polyphemus it, puts the curse on Odysseus because he doesn't want him to ever get home. He literally says if like if fate has it that he returns home, then this is what I want to happen. Yeah. So yeah, just to give context yeah. for, for people who might not know about that. So fate and destiny, I think, yeah, are driving this story. And every time – gosh uh, – the gods visiting Aeneas and telling him to move on, or if he's in the wrong place, telling him to move on. Aeneas twice in terms of Dido says, it is not of my will that I leave, but of the gods' will. He says that to her in book four, as well as in book six when he sees her again. So it's a lot. Like It seems like on the surface, he really has no free will whatsoever my only hope for him that he has some free will is that he does make choices i I think in terms of juno uh her only ability to mess with aeneas is to delay him and to push him off that storm yeah yeah she can't kill him the war and everything she can delay all of that from inevitably Mm -hmm. happening happening um but uh, the settling and everything, but it's still going to happen. So that's that's her ability. And with him, he had he was able. He landed in Carthage, obviously. Though he knew in the back of his mind, though he had to be reminded that he's going to have to leave. But hey, he did have a pretty nice time there in Carthage. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I think he's able to make some choices, but for the most point part, he is he's very much driven driven by yeah. fate with uh which you know we could at another point get into a discussion about predestination right which uh, some sects of christianity believe and some people yes do that's not. true <laughs> so it, it's hard i don't i still am very confused by it hey look there was the whole practice of plenary indulgences at one point <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know which is part of the canterbury yeah. tales in one of the prologues, one of the characters uh, at the end of his tale or something basically offers them up, <laughs> you know, like takes yeah. them. So, uh, so yeah, so no, I totally, and I totally know that it was the predestination. Was that Calvin? I think it's Calvin okay. is, is one of the, one of the, one of the people in, in, in Protestant in early Protestantism that comes with the, with the, that really holds true to that idea of predestination. Yeah. With the other characters, because they're not, spot lit as Mm -hmm. much Uh, it's hard to say i mean in terms of the trojan refugees they're really at the whim and the will of aeneas so they don't have too much i think with dido dido (laughs) i think it's a tie between manipulation and free will because obviously suicide you're taking your life in your own hands so i think in that moment she was able to to break that bad cycle um and and to a certain extent it was a blessing i'd like to know what happens to anna and does anna take control i mean she's able to go to the underworld and is reunited with her husband which is really i, I think 
I mean, that's a beautiful moment mm-hmm. once you get to the underworld. So, but yeah, just with if I were to tie it into the superstition, I wonder, I wonder about it, and I don't think Virgil's making you know some sort of critique about superstition or religion at that time. But reading it, it's just interesting because whenever a god appears or some sign appears, the people are easily manipulated into doing whatever happens, which is great for Pietas because, of course, you're, no, you're bowing to the gods, you're listening uh-huh. to them, but it's bad when clearly uh, the gods are against them. So I'm just thinking about book five because Juno uses her that belief, right, to get them to burn the ships because uh-huh. the people are like, oh, a god is telling us to do this. We must do it. So I just think that's uh, interesting too. I, I wonder how – I don't – right now I just haven't tied in how, how well that works with fate and free will. But I think their commitment to superstition be- belief in the gods and everything perhaps limits their free will because they're looking at what the gods are asking them to do. But on the other side, you also have a choice. Do I listen to the gods or do do I not? And in that moment, they had that choice, and they decided to listen mm. poorly to and burn the boats. Do you have any thoughts on other characters other than Aeneas? And no, no, I agree with you that a lot of the other characters are really beholden to what he has, and if he's guided by fate, and guided by fate is a very, very good, or propelled by fate is a very, very good way to put it. Because, like I said, there's there's got to be another, you know, because he's not a victim of fate as like Oedipus is, and so, um, but yeah, that superstition does get them into trouble. Whereas in in other epics, it doesn't necessarily do that. Is they're 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 going against the gods gets them into trouble uh, because they you know they disobey orders or something. So, um, but yeah, I think maybe the superstition kind of enables fate in some cases, perhaps. Mm. Maybe that's a good word for it. So yeah. Okay. Well, our last character's fate we shall okay. talk about is Turnus. And uh, so I, I save this for last just because I think this is a really important sure. question and I think it deserves to be last. So is Turnus's death justified? And I'll just say this is his speech uh, from Fitzgerald. Clearly I earned this and I ask no quarter. Make the most of your good fortune here. If you can feel a father's grief and you too had such a father in Anchises, then let me bespeak your mercy for old age and Donis and return me or my body, stripped, if you will, of life to my own kin. You have defeated me. The Asonians have seen me in defeat, spreading my hands. Lavinia is your bride, but go no further out of hatred. And Aeneas does. Aeneas, is sta- he stays his hand for a bit and then sees that oh i didn't talk about the booty question <laughs> we can tie that in here i think but yeah Aeneas sees palace's sword belt and uh he ends up killing and that's that is how it ends folks. it's uh, yeah. yeah well and the thing is like when achilles kills hector it seems justified in the context of <laughs> hector having killed patroclus but then achilles arrogantly Ride, ties Hector to his chariot and drags Hector's body around in front of everybody at Troy. I don't think I don't know what I, I don't even think we get that far. Like with the death of Turnus, it just kind of ends. Yeah, I don't think he would. I don't know if Aeneas would have done that because it, it struck me as like Virgil wouldn't have had him do that. He did, he wanted to have him be above that on some level. <sighs> this is death. That's justified. I think it was inevitable. I think it's a very human moment because it's out of like a real emotion and rage as opposed to an honor killing. Is that even a term? Uh, but is it justified? <sighs> I, you know, it's on the one hand, it seems like a murder. On the other hand, it's war. 
do you spare his life and just take the land and leave him kind of a shell of the person he once was? Is that a fate worse than just killing him? It's a tough, it's a tough answer because in the context of the war and, and Neus, like I said, it's whether or not it's justified, it was always going to happen. And, and perhaps the concept of revenge for vengeance for your, for your best friend, so to speak, is enough of a justification. But at the same time, there's also mercy and perhaps mercy is a is you know mercy is a very good attribute in a person and a soldier and a leader so perhaps he's making some sort of comment on that mm. yeah this is this yeah is this is it's, tough it's and i purposely asked i think it it needs to be asked because it does end so abruptly um the last four lines he sank his blade in fury in turnus's chest then all the body slackened in death's chill and with a groan for that indignity his spirit fled into the gloom below and that's it that is it yeah so who knows if virgil is going to yeah. continue on but it has an ending so there you go the reason why i Oh, this is interesting, right? Because did I want? Do I think it's justified, or do I just not like it? And I don't think that uh, Aeneas should do it. I think are two different. I think that, and I think that's a good point. Here. Yeah, I'm going to say that I don't think it was justified, and next week I might say that it was justified. I don't know. The reason why is because Aeneas has basically sacked mm-hmm. Lucian. It is now burning, which I think was a another poor yeah, they're, move they're essentially a, invaders like yes it's true yeah uh and he didn't want it that's true but that i mean he didn't need to burn that city or town rather he has killed like main opposition members i think mazentius was a, a person that needed to die for the sake of the alliance between um aeneas and evander and this was single combat and i think he could have just you are defeated and and turnus gives him everything he's like we'll be done my people know that we're done you have lavinia and and that's it in killing him does it necessarily prevent further wars in not killing him does it not you know wars happen for whatever reason but i hearken back to or i think back to book six where anchises in that same thing where i talked about you greeks will be able to do dot 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 with the roman section he says Woe to the proud, but mercy to the conquered. And yes, it, potentially he's mind wiped. But to think that there is that moment right there. You have conquered someone and he is humble. He is humble and asking for mercy and you don't give it to him. And I think in that case um, that it's not justified. If we go back to book 10, the slaughter that he commits is because of palace. And if we allow that to happen, should his blade, should Pallas's body and his blood be satiated? Not by that. Um, he killed so many people in that in that mm-hmm. book, and so I think, oh man, I, I feel I, it's just a move. I wish he hadn't had made. I think it is. It's not justified. Looking at it, and and I can appreciate that that emotional gut reaction to seeing this young man's belt that you have a connection with that was basically a um, hostage in the term of like, hey, there's a treaty between someone and here's my presentation for that and, and a significant, uh, significant person for that uh, with Evander. Uh, and you lost that, unfortunately. And, and I can appreciate that. But in that moment, 
he becomes a hated enemy in Achilles because I, I think he and it's just oh man it's just so it's heart-wrenching to watch so I just feel like no in that moment he should have been the bigger man and, and been that uh, yeah, yeah we and it's it's a killing that we've seen played out in cinema but in the cinema in different characters there's always an aftermath and I think the weakness of the scene i mean granted he died before he finished it so we don't know if he was going to add an epilogue and yeah. and he was going to add a, a fall it, it ends and it's essentially has very little falling action or resolution we just the resolution is the founding of rome um but the fall there's no falling action here and i think that's one of the as far as this question that's the biggest flaw and but it's it's not his fault he died i mean you know, so it's you know, but I think had had there been some falling action post the death, we would not have. We would be still be discussing this, but not with as much like consternation over it as we are. Yeah, yeah, I think it's something that'll be uh, yeah. debated for a long yeah, time, I can see and, that. and that's it's one of my questions that I ask at the end of all my students. So uh, you have to look at the mm-hmm. whole picture. I think of it's certainly not one moment in time, yeah. but and so this week I've decided that it is not justified. <laughs> but who knows what I'll say later. Okay, so there we are, uh, and and I would say just with I, one of my questions that we didn't talk about is is Virgil making a commentary on booty and then um, <laughs> commented on Sir it of, like Sir Mix a Lot <laughs> and all of that stuff. But there are so many times that people taking an item. Camilla was one. Uh, Nisus and Euryalus they were picked out because the moonlight was shining off of a helmet that they had taken from the camp. And so I feel like there's something that Virgil is saying about wartime and, and taking other people's yeah. belongings, even though that was a practice. But it's just like every time that happened, bam, that person was meeting that's their fate. Good, and that's what that's happened That's a very good point, yeah. So is this required reading, Tom? Um, I think if you, are, if you are a fan of mythology and you have read some more of the modern stuff, whether it be watching Star Wars or reading even the Harry Potter stuff or, or, going, or being like you know, Brett has read Percy Jackson and the Olympians and some of the other Rick Riordan things, then it becomes required reading because you should – it's almost like you start there and you work your way backward to the more complex to the source materials uh, in the same way that the Odyssey, I think, you know, up there with something like the Odyssey or Beowulf, um, that eventually you do, you should get around to reading this because it, it is just, it's one of those kind of foundational texts of Western literature. So, yeah. I believe that it's required reading. I mean, we're doing the Iliad or the Odyssey, so why not the follow-up or the sequel to... Um, God, why the hell would we do the Iliad? <laughs> <laughs> we uh it is required reading in my um latin class uh we do excerpts of it and we do a an interpretation of it so it's not the Aeneid. i tried that one year and it was rather hard they're not ready for it at eighth grade um <laughs> so uh and it's they read it in um junior year as well in their class which then goes on to the uh the Inferno and, and all uh-huh. of that stuff. Not the Inferno. Am yeah, I the right? Inferno, the Divine Comedy, the Inferno, Praetoria, yes, and yes, um, yes, Parodies. But I don't, I don't think Virgil's part go. of Parodies, you know, I think he's only Inferno. I've only read the Inferno, so um, I've never read all three books okay. of the Divine Comedy. All right. So, yes, my answer. I, I, I kind of figured that, though. <laughs> 
That'd be weird if I said no, absolutely. Right. Not. So um, we have two uh, two pieces of feedback. I'm going to read them both uh, to give Stella a rest here. Um, they are both on last episode, which was Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, the first is from Robert Ward, our scholastic book buddy. He says, I really appreciate this book choice. Uh, this was on Facebook, by the way. In the first half of my life, I grew up in an arena with, or sorry, in an area with a larger population of minorities, whereas when we moved, it was much more white. I'll never be able to fully understand the black experience, but I am very socially conscious and glad to hear what life is like and how they relate to their experiences. I may be awfully white, but do consider myself an ally and always curious about issues important to women and other races. As it happens, I've never heard the stress on the body like quotes utilizes, which works out because I recently read an up an article on recognizing the whiteness of Jane Austen in which the author wrote in a similar style. How the author wrote how minorities reflect and interpret from their body and its racial history, which is needed. This was a nice little introduction to the terminology. Overall, the book left me a little sad. It's so many years later, and we were dealing with the same problems. I was too young to pay attention to previous shootings and depressed to hear just how often police continuously and unjustly murder people of color without consequences. So that's from Robert. We have a lengthy email from Donovan Morgan Grant, um, who is the host of Questions We Don't Have Answers, which is an outstanding podcast that we've referenced a number of times in the show. I'm going to read it in its entirety. I don't have much commentary about it. uh, So I just wanted to let it speak for itself. Um, So Tom and Stella, the, uh, the title of the email, and I forgot to uh, copy and paste it was something on the order of reading comprehension or between the world and me with Tom and Stella. Um, it's, it is hard to know how to begin, so I'll come right and tell you that I deeply disliked episode 38. The haste and confusion with coupled with Stella's passive aggro dismissal of the book and Coates as an author left me with the realization that your fundamental misunderstanding of the book's point, a misunderstanding brought about from a lack of sufficient engagement, was indicative of the larger problem of communication when it comes to understanding race in America. I don't know how two lit teachers could miss something so consistently rendered and articulated in every passage of the book, asking rudimentary questions like, why is this addressed to his son? And aside from figuring that coach dressing up his prose like James Baldwin was his sole intention, coming up with, I don't know. I'm honestly surprised no one asked why the book was even called Between the World and Me and what that between represented. But it's just as well if not asking it meant sparing discussion from another despondent verbal shrug from Stella. But this is the impasse that we always arrive at, isn't it? Someone can full-throatedly explain what their worldview is, white supremacy rules the world, how it came to be growing up in a world of violence with fiercely protective parents under the threat of gangs and police-born understanding of violence, why it is the way it is, a misguided belief in the created concept of race and its imagined hierarchy, and what the purpose of that understanding means for his future, his son. But the crux of the conversation becomes how his experiences relate to the two of you. That's where the disconnect begins. There's enough self-awareness that you can't relate, but you end up turning your backs at the door while the windows are left wide open for you to peer into. Frustrating questions like, why did kids Coates' age look up to Malcolm X? And why did his teachers try to disabuse him of the ideology and sense of self they subsumed under the idea of Malcolm X? Really sting because they, to me, suggest a refusal of the reality that Coates illustrates. That's the only way someone could tune out something so obvious. If they rejected Coates' assertions that life was at all bad as he paints. 
This is confusing for two reasons. One, this isn't the first race-centered work that you've read for the podcast, the Bluest Eye and Marcher's examples. Uh, and two, what other reality lines with history as vividly as the one where the history is of an entire people is defined by violence, so that violence creates splintered, fractured, and tortured psyche and twisted perspectives of the self. This is also in line with James Baldwin's work, and if you're familiar with it like Stella says she was, it tracks thematically. In his debate against William Buckley Jr. at Cambridge in 1965, Baldwin remarked upon Robert F. Kennedy's comment that black people could see a black president in 40 years' time, and how that idea was met with scorn and derision from the black majority who heard it, and how the image of black people had up to that point been created with either mockery or monstrosity. Those facts created the reality of his cynicism, and it's eloquent—it's the eloquence that Baldwin employed that contextualizes the cynicism, not the style of his cynicism itself, which Coates is after. But if a major critique of this book was the notion that Coates made a depressing bedtime story to read to his son so he could be like his hero James Baldwin, and the difference being that Baldwin dabbled in pondering the potential of hope, then that just speaks to a more pernicious yearning for what you may have gone into this book wanting to see delivered. I can only imagine, though not hard because I've seen this elsewhere in, re in reactions to Coach, that you wanted redemption for, for American white America at large by way of hope. Before going further, I've said that I've grappled with others in arguments about hope in America before, with my affirmations in the positive. I've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with professional writers, authors, professors, and social and pop culture theorists about the future of race relations, what that will look like, and how it may be expressed as well as how far we've come. I historically view our future as positive as most right-minded people would like to, mainly when it comes to the subject of race relations and representation depicted through media. But I've also been stopped by the police numerous times for no reason at all. I've been stopped by the police before even getting into my own car, dressed in a button-down shirt and flanked by a group of friends, singled out and accused of things I didn't do. I've known people, friends, family, brought down by gun violence. I've been lied about, spoken of, and presumed of things that accord with negative stereotypes since I was a child by adults, including teachers, who should have and did know better. And I stayed up late drinking myself to sleep over the verdict of the Michael Brown murder because it was after Eric Garner and after Tamir Rice and after Trayvon Martin, but it was before Sandra Bland and Walter Scott and Freddie Gray and Philander Castile. When Coates writes that Prince Jones was cut down by a person, quote, who should have been his security guards, quote, he's speaking to the injustice of a system that elides the contradiction of its own sworn vow. That contradiction, that hypocrisy, can't be measured in a universal relation because it's as singular as a, and specific as it is insane. When you're asking for hope, you're not only ignoring the segments about his discovery of beauty within the numerous and endlessly diverse subsections of the black individual he discovered at Howard, sorry, he discovered at Howard, or the newfound sense of expansion and even freedom he experienced in France. You're asking for this to go away, for the cure for the cure for the disease, and when none has given up, end up shooting the messenger and saying, I like Baldwin better, he was nicer. But this isn't fiction, this is an anecdote. This isn't an anecdote written for no reason. To put it plainly, I think it's offensive to suggest that Coates was in any way being disingenuous or anything other than loving with the whole of his being and writing for this for his son. Yes, it's absolutely disquieting and depressing and not geared for light reading, but it's also utterly honest, completely serious and forthright in a way that allows all kinds of emotions to come through in the writing, even if the overarching tone is dour. 
If the intentions of Coates professors at Howard University were to base him were to disabuse him from the bravado employing pretensions of what would have been described as Malcolm X acolytes, and he believe I believe in the book he used Malcolmites was the word. That is to say, to let go of the, no- of the notion that black people are superior than whites to combat the oppressively ingrained image of inhumanity. What I'm trying to make you understand is that the narrative of race in America is not a straight line of things were awful, but lad- gradually less so now. It's a problem of humanity understood not in degrees of but dimensions. Understanding the problem is the hope. If the book's description of the reality is too ugly to fully immerse yourselves in, at least do the work of tackling the basic issues of how can policing improve based on what Coates describes, or even discuss what other people might have to say to combat or interrogate Coates' claim. Demonstrate an understanding of the weight of the issues at hand, that's all I ask. Otherwise, foggy, befuddled misunderstandings are all we're going to be left with, and there will be more books like this written in the future, and more people will be and more people will read every heartbroken word meticulously typed out as though people's lives depended on it and ask, but where's the hope? Pissily yours with love, Donovan Morgan Grant. And I just, I, um, just to, I, I didn't really have much commentary on the email. I, it's a very, very long email, obviously. Um, and I wanted to read it in its entirety without editing it because it, in, in re-listening to the episode, I stated a lot of actually what was wrong with the episode and 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 in in on my part because I was taking the lead in the episode and 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 led the discussion and asked um did not go beyond the basic kind of level questions that you know you usually use for sort of like you know icebreakers or entry levels of things and um and really looked at my own kind of incoherence throughout and and misunderstanding and was uh, you know, in terms of like you know, my participation was you know was very very lazy in that regard. Not the and 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 he and I just you know off off mic off off show had a, had a very uh, very honest conversation about this the other night. Uh, we were talking about this just to kind of you know because because you know I told him I read this and I reread this and you know I wanted to talk to him about it in person as opposed to you know over Facebook. Um, and we, you know we talked about a lot of uh, about what was here and I just so I, I told him I, I wanted to just present this as as it was because I think it's a very I just you know it it was just a very very good email and and I wanted I wanted our, our listeners to hear it because uh, the the book itself and I don't think my I don't think unfortunately my actual enthusiasm for the book came across in the episode and uh, and the book is a at least from my point of view it was it was uh, it was a very uh, see and I'm, I'm getting inarticulate again um, it was a book that is a uh, not just a, a memoir but it was a it's almost like a work of like that's sociological, that's philosophical, and um, and and we we you knew we talked about uh, we talked about the 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 book itself uh, some more, and we we and so uh, I did appreciate really really did appreciate um, him writing in and writing him at length, mainly because I, I you know I, having been a a friend of considering him a friend and then being a fan of his show like you know, respect his what, what he has to say a lot so. Um, so uh, if if anybody has any any commentary or anything like that on it or on um, on uh, what we had to say or anything beyond what was just presented here, uh, feel free to email us in. You know we we will uh, we will we'll definitely read it. So um, unless you have anything else to say, um, we can get on to what we're going to be talking about in the next episode. No, Donovan has threatened that uh, he and I will be having a conversation. 
I'm afraid my opinion still holds of, of, of what I said. And I apologize because maybe my negativity brought down your positivity. And I'm not normally the negative one. But I just have some fundamental issues with it. And I'm obviously not black. And I cannot speak into the black experience. But I am a woman. And I do have a woman experience. And I think there are some connections there. Not as uh, violent physically or otherwise as the black experience but there that's why I have some uh, issues with this but I will probably talk with Donovan in person (laughs) rather than like oh you know open up a whole new thing right here right now so I think uh, we should just end it where it is and I'll say that you know Tom I think you're harder on yourself I, I think that you uh, yes, he brings up some problems with the, with the discussion, but yeah, I honestly didn't have many uh, answers. I mean, I guess I wasn't as prepared as I, I should have been. I think perhaps that book deserved more of my time than I gave it, uh, and I I read it. I had my opinion, but perhaps I should have delved in a bit more and done it, so I do apologize for being a poor co-host on that one. Uh, we did know the dangers going in there, but um, I just don't want you to take like all the blame on that because I feel like that does an injustice uh, for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, just it was um, one of those things where, uh, and this is something I said to him on Skype the other night. So it's nothing. It's nothing new that he would hear. Was that you know I, I apologize for being as unprepared as I was, or just just badly coherent and not 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 getting not getting into the deeper critical thinking about the book, and then for putting you know for putting him in the position where he felt that he had to to to. to to send this much of an email that is more like where like he has to step in and feel that he has to teach us because it's not his job. And because it's one thing to have a it's one thing to have a back and forth, you know, where if he wrote in and said, you know, here's some more stuff that, you know, I think here's some points that I have that could add to yours or that do contest yours and we can have almost like a dialogue. But um, I put him in the position where he was like, you know, where we were like, you know, at least I was completely missing the point off the mark and some stuff. But, um, you know, it, it's and and I was trying to, you know, I, you know, this is the first work by Coates I've read. I've read a, I have read his his article, the, the um, some a couple of other articles and things, and um, and I've I I have not, like I said, I have not read much Baldwin. But then I'm just like, you know, I. It just needs to. It, it's. I hate. I hate to say. It, I don't want it to come off as a pat response, but I'm like. I just. I need to keep reading, and I need to keep. I need to read more of him. I need to read Malcolm X, and, and I'm. And I'm not saying to give a pat answer. You know. Oh well. I guess I have more to learn because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying no, that. Yeah, but yeah, we, we do. do. We, we do. But I'm, I'm trying not to leave it at that, that because yeah. it's, that's such a pat answer. So, but I do. I really do appreciate what he had to say, and I'm, I really, really appreciate the fact that he. Um, that that he and I could have a conversation about it, and uh, so thanks. So thanks, thanks again for for emailing in. So we do have another. We do next episode is episode forty. So it's a special topic, and it's one that we've talked about for a while. And uh, why don't you tell us what it is? <laughs> Actually, yes. tell us what we were just talking about. It's true. I actually, I'm still working through. Apparently, I was the one to suggest this, but I don't even know what it means yes, yet. We're, uh, but we're going to be talking about empathy in literature. Yeah. So uh, we're going to, it's not a specific book, just like every other episode is uh, of, of the tens is. So we will, we'll see what direction it takes us. It's kind of a very vague topic. It is. <laughs> I know. It's just going to be like, oh, what if we didn't have any notes for it and we just like went in and then saw what? Yeah, and then I had to edit Does that. that make you nervous? <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah. um, yeah. So you thought I was incoherent before? 
All right. Well, I think that's about it. As always, give us your feedback on any this episode, previous episodes, anything. Rate us on iTunes and all those things. And uh, as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And if someone asks for mercy and you see something shining on him, think twice before what you're about to To quote Ned Flanders, though, mercy is for the weak, Todd. Whoa, I'm surprised Ned would say that. It's the mini golf episode. It's such a great episode. Oh, okay. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.